I'm Molly. And I'm Matthew. And we're from Spilled Milk, a comedy show about food. Things like grilled cheese or figs. But usually it winds up being about like making out. But not with each other. And eating too many M&Ms and playing a game involving flaming raisins. The New York Times named Spilled Milk one of six podcasts to feed your inner gourmand and described the show as, quote, less deliberately educational than other food podcasts. New episodes of Spilled Milk air every Thursday. Happy New Year, Greg. I'm so sorry. I just realized right now in our warm-up what's about to happen. And I, from half of this podcast, would like to apologize for the behavior of the other half of this podcast. Uh, there's no reason to apologize just yet. <laughs> because I kept saying to you before we started recording, like, Greg, I've got a surprise for you in this episode. And you're like, what? What, what could it be? Uh, shucks. A surprise for me? <laughs> Is it a mayonnaise sandwich? I honestly thought the second surprise was the uh, Christmas crunch you had. I'm like, oh, good <laughs> yeah. for him. He's very happy about his Christmas crunch. Well, we're back in my apartment. It's Boxing Day. It's, boxing it's day. the day after Christmas. Well, that's when we're recording. But I've been showing you like all the gifts I've gotten yeah. for Hanukkah and Christmas. Yes. Uh, I've got an on-air sign from my parents that's all lit up. Thank you, the, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Afrin. <laughs> and I also have a box of Christmas Captain Crunch. <laughs> and you stupidly thought that, you stupid idiot, you thought that Christmas Captain Crunch, that's perennial. <laughs> that's there all year, Greg. He could dress like Santa so easily and he still <laughs> wants to show off his blues, his navy blues. Well, you were like, you can't wait for this second surprise. I'm like, what is it? And then you're like, look at this Christmas crunch. And I assumed because, uh, you know, uh, the way sentences work, uh, that it was the cereal. As the captain knows, that's called the old bait and switch. <laughs> it's one of the more uh, popular naval moves. Uh, that's how he retook Fallujah. <laughs> Oh, sorry. He crunched Fallujah. Crunched it. All right. There's no- I am crunched. Destroyer of worlds. <laughs> sorry. Go ahead. All civilizations crunch beneath me. <laughs> All right. It's January 1st as this episode comes out. Yes. We know what episode number this is. Let's just say it. It's episode 109. 109. And for, honestly, since probably September. It was since the Mary Pickford episode, which I believe it was, was since, September. That was episode- 100. Yeah, yeah, so it's been nine months. It's been more than September. Yeah, you're it's right. It's been more than a September, Greg. No, I think it was episode 103 because I thought I had misheard oh, right. the Elvis lyric from the song you're Burning right. Love, where right. I thought he said it must be 103 or 105. I don't know. I think it was actually 101. So, like, we passed it. So, we should have skipped this. The fact of it all is, I've been plotting for months. <laughs> so, I've been plotting, nay, threatening <laughs> for months to have an Elvis reference about episode 109 because he says in the lyrics, if you're not familiar with, as I call him, the king, mm -hmm. the pelvis, the pelvic king of music <laughs> in the song Burning Love, he says it must be 109 because his temperature is so, his, his love is so hot, Greg. Yeah, it's burning up. This like, uh, let's say uh, some sort of fever that you get from dying on that toilet. Uh, you'd be burning <laughs> yeah, up. Toilet fever. Toilet fever. <laughs> you got a bad case of the toilet fever. <laughs> I mean, that's the most polite way to put one in. <laughs> So I've prepared a little thing. I mean, 
I've, I've been working on this for so long mm. and it's it's a really funny joke. Everyone loves it when I bring it. We up. all agree it's a really funny <laughs> joke. <laughs> we all agree how funny it was that I kept saying I'm going to do an Elvis thing about episode 109 because uh-huh. he says 109. We've all been looking forward to this. I've practiced for months, <laughs> but I've put together a little recording. Oh, no. You may notice there's a little cord hanging uh, onto your desk over there. And if you will detach your headphones from where they currently are into that cord, you will hear, and the audience, I will put this in, a... A recording that you... I've been practicing so hard, you won't even be able to tell the difference between me and Elvis. Hopefully, this is like the beginning of Scanners and my brain just blows up. Because of how good it is. You'll be be the one having uh, toilet (laughs) fever. (laughs) You're all going to get toilet fever after listening to this. So I I have to go uh, walk over there to activate it on my computer. Okay. Hopefully, nothing happens uh, to you on the way from over there to uh, over here. No falling and breaking your arms. Hope you don't get a uh, sudden onslaught of toilet fever. (laughs) Way to pressing play. So the next thing you're going to hear is a little celebration by the greatest Elvis impersonator you've ever heard of 109. Oh no! Already. Everything's normal. Everything's fine. It's burning through to my Joe. <laughs> My brain is flaming. I don't know which way to go. Your references lift me higher. Like a sweet song of Richard Pryor. You light my morning sky with funny Joe. <laughs> oh my god. There's no way this is like two hours. Episode 109. Fun, 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 Joe. 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 What a ridiculous human being you are. Fun, 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 Joe. This is the kind of thing that requires a behind-the-scenes documentary. The way that Apocalypse Now has a movie about making Apocalypse Now, you should also have a little recording of like your wife crying and begging you not to do this. Well, you promised it. <laughs> well, you delivered, if nothing else, delivered. I delivered. Yeah. I promise. But like I was saying off uh, off microphone, that took hours. <laughs> like I was sitting. The first process of it was me sitting alone in my bedroom, going, oh, oh, <laughs> getting my Elvis voice on. Do you have toilet fever in there? No, I'm doing Elvis. <laughs> Thank you. So that's uh, been nine months of nine, nine months of toiling. <laughs> the word's toiling. You sound just like. <laughs> Elvis, I know. You sound just like old Elvis. I, <laughs> you sound like a certain era of Elvis. I, I sound just like an old Elvis impersonator <laughs> on, on the Las Vegas Strip. Sobbing over a, a trash can. That was a lot of work. That was a lot of work. And I even like I was able to find a instrumental track of it wow. that wouldn't have the 
let's just say his inferior lyrics playing. I was surprised. I was thought the whole thing was going to be karaoke and it was just going to be like a little MIDI song. I was th- other things that were like, oh, no, no. other things I was thinking of were like I could get a rhinestone jacket and show up to the <laughs> recording with like big wraparound sunglasses. <laughs> Not only was this economical, it also sounded great. All that money went into this recording. I know. Phil Spector zoomed in from jail to help me record this. Now, what you're going to need to do is point a gun at at the computer, and it'll sound great. So what better way to welcome us into the year 2023 and episode 109? You've passed the hardest part. I guarantee the hardest thing about listening to this podcast in the new year is you've already gone through it. We started at the lowest trench (laughs) and at the end of the year, I will do a recording (laughs) of Frank Sinatra's I Did It My Way. I don't even know if I want to put that into the ether yet that I'm going to have to work on my Sinatra impression for the next 12 months. I'm begging you to not get any more ideas. So other than doing that in the last month of December, let's talk about what we did <laughs> in the No, let's keep talking about you doing it. I want to I want to know every part of it. This is the grand opus of like I always make fun of you and your limericks, your <laughs> first know. sentences and like how you'll be like at a piano and being like da 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 and and like it's just the first sentence to intro your subject but it has to be you know referencing uh, back to the future 3 specifically specifically part 3 because you're going to be talking about like the old west and LA and you're like I know the perfect way to do this I went down to the train tracks to record a train going by <laughs> and there's like uh, post-its on the wall and first draft and they're like different colored and you're organizing your brain and your wife's begging you to come to bed and you're like I'm not ready this is the, this is your uh, bohemian rhapsody this <laughs> no nobody understood <laughs> Everyone said it was crazy. When Melissa got out of bed and walked into the kitchen at three in the morning and saw me eating four peanut butter and banana sandwiches stacked on top of each other, she didn't understand. But after she hears this, she'll come back to she'll me. She'll come back to me for sure. Yeah, I swear she will. She will. And I'll get rid of the sandbox. in My in my piano's in a sandbox. I'll get rid of it. I won't I'll, need it I'll cure myself of my toilet fever. <laughs> Well, what did you do in December of 2022 to close out? I certainly didn't make anything as great as that. (laughs) Yeah, what what parody did you work (laughs) What parody have you been working on for the last nine months? (laughs) I uh, went to an exhibit at the LA Central Library that was new. I went to see, they had, um, I forgot what the exhibit had previously, but some of the Breakfast Club stuff was there, like ham, which is the the wooden (laughs) horse you sit on when you get inducted. Just loose ham. Yeah, loose ham uh, was there, and the cryptogram was on display, and I, I meant to go sooner, and I just didn't really have the chance, but I finally went. And they had, it was the first day of the new exhibit. So I was like, oh, no. But the new exhibit is really great, too. Oh, so you didn't get to see the Breakfast Club? No, thing? I didn't oh. get to see the Breakfast What's Club. What's the though. new exhibit? Uh, it's called Barrier Breakers from Jackie to Pumpsy, 1947 to 1959. And it's it's from the um, Negro League Baseball Museum in Kansas City, Missouri. Mm-hmm. And they have about like a it's about like the integration of black baseball players into the major leagues. And we met the director who was there like we must have been there like 10 minutes after it opened because like there's a small (laughs) crowd of the people who put it together. And the director was there and he met me and Ada and he was like, you want to see Ham? Yeah, you want to you want to see Ham? We have him out back. He said something really smart, which is like everybody talks about Jackie being the first baseball player who uh, got into the major leagues from the from the Negro League, and he's like, but nobody remembers like the second or the fifth. <laughs> like that, it, it, the first one breaks the barrier, then everyone else is inconsequential, and he didn't like that. We have talked about this before. Yeah. Of you either want to be the first or the third yeah, person, exactly, to do something because the first person is the one who broke ground. Yeah, the third person is the one who kind of perfected it, and yeah. the second person is just the second person. And- 
Yay, Nobody it's remembered. a transition guy. <laughs> you held the space until a better person came. So who was the third black uh, <laughs> professional? Well, if you go to this exhibit at Central, Central Library, you'll see. And they have jerseys and a lot of information about the players and where the league was at at the time. And it was it was, it was a great exhibit. Well, as we learned in the baseball one, there was that, what was it? The, I think it was the Black Sox that was in a uh, like minor league or like a, so. a Negro League I, I'd have to re-listen LA, to it, like but that. yeah. I also, in doing research for the calendars yeah. that you can all buy still, well, you'll hear a little bit about yeah, yeah, that later. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know this. Apparently, the first black umpire uh-huh. in the MLB, the MLB, I guess it's called. Yes. The first black umpire was from, I think, South Central. Oh, really? So oh, uh, that's, that's yeah, a big deal. Yeah. If we was knew his there? name, it would be great. <laughs> you went to the exhibit. You're the one who should know. I don't know anything about but I know Jackie Robinson and I know Mike Piazza. <laughs> And only one of those people broke new ground. <laughs> For immortal baseball players, representing immortal baseball players. First immortal baseball yeah, player. Yeah, Mike Piazza. It's, it's going on until February 19th, so if you're a big baseball fan, you should probably go check it out. Or if you're a big history fan, you should probably go check it out, because it's, it's a great show. You don't see any ham there. No ham. No, Ham's you, back home. You've got to go back to Breakfast Club if you want to see ham <laughs> and all his nobility. Well, Breakfast Club kind of transitions to my thing. Uh-huh. Something in Griffith Park rather something that is no longer in Griffith Park. You did a few months ago, you had a little eulogy for Doc who died. Yes, but I think this month I'm going to take my thing of the month to have a little eulogy for P22 who right. died this past month. Uh, quite horrifically. I, like I, th- There's so many celebrity deaths yeah. <laughs> that I get notifications about on my phone and this one really made me upset. Yeah, it was. it's really sad. Like the way it happened and just because we first learned about and talked about P22. I think it was our Griffith versus Getty episode, uh-huh. which was like our third or fourth episode. That yeah. was like it was like 106 episodes ago, if, <laughs> if Elvis's math is right. <laughs> if that flawless Elvis impersonator's math is right. That's when we first learned about him. And that was like nigh upon 10 years ago. Yeah. And he's always like, since then, I like to take a little bit of credit. I, oh I think we God. broke the story. We didn't break him at the end, like the driver who should be uh, dragged through the streets <laughs> did. But we talked about him and then he sort of got pretty popular after that. So, uh, <laughs> Jesus Christ. Uh, I like to take credit for this. <laughs> we made P22. <laughs> Before us, he was M22. <laughs> we took him up to P. Yeah, he's just been a constant thing in our episodes. He's become more and more popular around LA. Yeah, like local legend. Cardboard cutouts of him and mm-hmm. stuff stuff and it sucks yeah, like it really it, it's suck. like losing a pet almost yeah, a absolutely. pet that i would be scared to ever meet but <laughs> that was a big shocker because they're always sort of finding different reasons to like oh we got to go check on him and he always yeah. like finds a way to get in the news this is the worst way to get in the news is when they have to be put down and he needed to be i mean he didn't need to be it's got one last stunt yeah he they had to euthanize him that's what that's what kind of like i wish he hadn't I guess I like I don't know the extent of his injuries of being hit by a car, right. but um, when I got hit by a car, I was fine. But I, poor I, car. I, I wish that he had been able to be like kept in captivity in the zoo or something and just lived out the rest of his life in yeah. you know some semblance of health. But uh, I guess it's for the the best that he's uh, dead. I, I, <laughs> I trust the people that had to put yeah, him down. Yeah, I'm sure. Like, I'm not. I'm not like you know. Step aside. Let, give me the defibrillator. I can, <laughs> I can bring him back. Yeah. I'm Doctor Doolittle. Let me in. <laughs> you got a parrot on my shoulder. <laughs> but the it, parent it, and me agree that we could save his life. We'll miss you, P20. I, I'm wondering yeah. who's going to which mountain lion is going to take his place. Yeah, I've seen anything from uh, the new Batman film. Uh, you know, there's a someone's gonna there's gonna be a big war to get to the top again. <laughs> we'll we'll start getting these like interrupting your transmission. Yeah, P23 and like yeah. a, a Guy Fox mask. <laughs> I I owed Griffith Park. <laughs> Griffith, Jay Griffith. 
G22. <laughs> but yeah, so we'll miss you, P22. We'll miss you. It's, uh, it, w- it was a fun ride to yeah. have him, to have something like that just be part of LA culture. Well, I'll attack a rabbit in your, in your, <laughs> yeah. to honor you. For you, P22, I'll leave a bunch of scat on a trail in Griffith <laughs> Park. So it's, uh, as we know, it's episode 109. Uh, It's January January 1st. 1st. So this episode, the idea of it is I wanted to, I've been thinking about this for a while and I didn't quite know who would fit into this, but then we, we found some people who pretty much fit in. I wanted to talk about dirt bags. <laughs> like, you did. Sleaze balls, slimy, because we talked about a lot of bad people in right, Los Angeles. Right, yeah. Like the person who hit P22. <laughs> Whoever you are, you're listening. We know it. Imagine. Imagine. Imagine a meekling killed P22. Oh, God. And, they, and then they, we got brought down in the fire. I, I would love it. A uh, local Good Samaritan was listening to a unlistenable <laughs> Elvis reference uh, on a podcast while driving. And the only culprit in uh, yeah. the death of P22 was that podcast. The frustration felt over listening to this unlistenable podcast caused the driver to strike a mountain lion. <laughs> Out of rage. Out of rage. <laughs> so we wanted to talk about just sort of sleaze balls, dirt bags, just bad people. Not bad. Not. Your guy isn't really bad. He's not. And the more I did research on him, I'm like, oh, actually, like, like I, I feel bad because the sleepiness comes from a really sad place. Yeah. Um, I mean, it always does. It always, as it tends to do. <laughs> so I felt like a lot more sympathy than I ever felt for this person before. Well, I used to look. look th- that's a lesson for us. Don't judge a sleaze bag by their characteristics and their actions. Judge them by their history that they don't <laughs> reckon with. <laughs> but yeah, just sort of like famously uh, sleazy kind of people. Yeah. My person is not a good person, but your person, from what I'm hearing, yeah, not I mean, a bad he, guy. He, I had heard a story. I guess I'll just tell the story first. And this will be my intro to the person. Doc, my old time painting teacher, uh, Ralph Guffrey, was living in San Pedro. And I don't know how long ago this happened. He must have been a little more mobile at the time, but he was on a bus and somebody was picking a fight with the bus driver <laughs> and Doc was getting real sick of it. So he went to approach the person, probably as aggressive and authoritarian as Doc could be. <laughs> you call that a line? Yeah. <laughs> and the two got into a fight and he found out much later that this person was Charles Bukowski. <laughs> like a physical fight or just an argument? It sounded like a shoving match. Oh my God. On a bus. And Perfect. that fits into Bukowski's character of being the belligerent guy in a bus who's probably been drunk since yesterday. I was, I I mean, I, I still love the Beat Generation writers and everything. They're not the greatest writers that I thought well when I was a teenager. But, you know, there, there are really like three West Coast beat writers and he's one of them. But I didn't know much about him. And then I had heard some, one of those bad like Napster recordings or something of like just a bunch of clips of beatnik writers and like jazz playing behind it. But there's one section that I really liked and I couldn't figure out who it was for the longest time. And I eventually found out it was Charles Podcast. I'm just going to read that little thing real quick. Okay. It's not that Is poetic. It, this guy pushed me on a bus and I call it bus. Born into this. Into hospitals, which are so expensive that it's cheaper to die. Into lawyers who charge so much, it's cheaper to plead guilty. Into a country where the jails are full and the madhouse is closed. Into a place where the masses elevate fools into rich heroes. And I was like 17, like, hell yeah. This is the best thing I've heard. <laughs> I don't think I've read any Bukowski anything. I've read some, I think like two novels and some, like a, a batch of poems. I kind of like had gotten over that phase a long time ago. So having to reread some of this, I kind of was like, some of it's good, some of it's bad. But I, I just like sitting with him as a person more, I've certainly felt a lot more for him. Well, that's, that, that I don't know his work. I just know his reputation as a person. What's, what, what's the reputation? Uh, I know he used to be a mailman. So already he's a degenerate. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Any mail, anybody who anybody who works mail. in the mailroom is yeah. a sleazebag, dirtbag, bad mm-hmm. person. Nothing wrong there. <laughs> but I know he'd be at Jumbo's clown room a lot. Right. Yeah. And I just know he was kind of like just a drunk old pervert around town. That's that's, a, that's kind of the yeah, feeling I that's, got. That's none of that is incorrect. <laughs> that's his brand, basically. And then, what a brand! What a brand! And L.A. like. You go so many places, and it's like Pukowski was here. Oh, this is you'll yeah, find yeah. out later. Like Jump, Jumbo's Clown Room, and and yet beloved, but despite beloved. all that, yeah, exactly. And that, if I can sum up what I'm about to say, beloved, <laughs> despite of all the things about him, <laughs> and nevertheless, he's beloved. One of the great California writers, along with Raymond Chandler, really captured a piece of Los Angeles lore and its personality. I would say, uh-huh. rereading some of his stuff, Pukowski's alter ego Henry Chiansky, That's his like. That's his alter ego. He write, A lot of his stories will have this character, and it's just a, a, oh, a okay. proxy him. Henry Chiansky is like if Philip Marlowe never became a detective, and he was just like a sad drunk who kind of quips. Yeah, the drinking like, part. Yeah, the drinking part. <laughs> just the quipping and the, like, I'm sad and kind of funny, but I'm also been drinking for three days straight. <laughs> Sounds like a mailman. And that's really, I was thinking about that, about, you know, there's so many, like, of the classic writers. Like, we talked about Fitzgerald before. We talked about Raymond Chandler. They have a couple sentences before you find out that they're, like, the worst alcoholic you've ever met. <laughs> And Bukowski has that up front. I think because his writing was about that, he wore that on his sleeve. It was like the most honest thing about him was like, I've been drink- I have a drinking problem. Okay. So like other writers probably drank as much as him, but because they're like renowned, it's kind of hidden like the third fact or as you say about Jerry Lee Lewis, it's like the thing that's like, you have to scroll down for this to find out who married who. Great Balls of Fire. Yeah. Uh, uh-huh. The Golden Quartet yeah. uh, with that guy who sang about 109. He married his what? <laughs> Bukowski is known for being like daddy dirtbag, like drinking into oblivion, having sex with sex workers, hanging out with gamblers, having like 100,000 small jobs that would never last him very long. Uh, the New York Review of Books noted that Bukowski wrote as a unregenerate, lowbrow contemptuous of our claims to superior being. Wow. Yeah. That's uh, scathing. <laughs> that was a compliment. <laughs> the best review the New York Times has ever given. When it comes to renowned LA sleazebags, it doesn't get much farther than beat poet Bukowski. The hard scrabble life of Henry Bukowski starts hard scrabble. His father, Henry, was an American soldier fighting occupying Rhineland in Western Germany during World War One, which is where he met Bukowski's mother, who was from there. Little Heinrich Karl Bukowski Jr. was born there in Androck, Germany in August 1920. The family moved with baby Bukowski uh, to America, first to Baltimore, then to Southern California. The Bukowskis start in Pasadena at 231 South Hudson Avenue, then to Los Angeles proper at 2122 Longwood Avenue in the West Adams area. This is his childhood home. You can go visit it. I think it's still, still there. It's, I think, yeah, there's a website. I'll talk to the website at the end, but there's a website with a timeline of his life. Uh, what was happening in LA history and all the addresses around that year that he wow. was at. And there's a, a lot of addresses. <laughs> so this was his childhood home there in Longwood Avenue and it was the first brewing ground for trauma. Bukowski's dad was a terror, like a strict disciplinarian who would beat Charles with a razor strop for even the minor. In, like just a small. It's a strop. I, I'm not quite sure. Like it, it's, it's a st- strop. I thought they misspelled strap on every website, but it's <laughs> called a strop. It's a bunch of branches unless you're in the Jackson family. Then it's a a swish. Yeah, different in, families have different words and for you're in trouble, yeah. how they create trauma that's passed down through generations. He sometimes would, the other families. Sometimes it passes on. Sometimes it's just a cloud of trauma, like a swarm of bees that you carry around with you. Uh, he would beat the hell out of Charles if he didn't mow the lawn to his dad's meticulous liking. Like it had to be done so specifically. He's a soldier. Be, I guess that's that military training. I mean, I don't want to disparage <laughs> military men out there. Please, the captain is in the corner. Yeah, the admiral is back there. Uh, 
He's not admirable. He's clearly Captain Crunch. He's not admirable. Admiral. Admiral. Ad- he's the admirable what Captain Crunch. What I admire Crunch. about him is that he's an admiral. <laughs> Stress of these beatings caused little Charles to develop boils all over his face, which Ooh. scarred him for life, which is why his okay, face that, is so messed. Like, it's that makes a lot sense. of... Yeah. Yeah, he has. He's got a very Edward James almost sort of face yeah. going on. LA Times Magazine writer Paul Ciotto described his face as having a sandblasted face, warts in his eyelids, and a dominating nose that looks as if somebody assembled it in a junkyard from a Studebaker hoods and a Buick Fenders. Boy, the press was so kind to him. They're like, "Oh, he hates himself. It's okay. We're mean to him yeah. too. He won't feel it." As a kid, he did not. He ad- knows what he looks like. He kn- what, mirrors don't exist? As a kid, he did not adjust well. He was bullied. He failed to make pals that were quote-unquote idiot friends. It all changed at the age of 13 when Bukowski took the first step towards the future. He discovered alcohol in the wine oh, cellar of his friend's home at 13. And this was the answer to beatings and boils and rejections. He said, it was magic. Why hadn't someone told me already that this was a thing? <laughs> I had to wait till I was 13 yeah, to 13 before alcohol? I can start coping with all of this. <laughs> as it is with many abused child discovering alcohol drugs, like self-medicating and self-destruction would blend into this discovery. Like, I feel better. I better do it every day. And then like suddenly <laughs> you've been drinking every day since you were 13. For middle school, he went to Mount Vernon Junior High, which is now Johnny Cochran Middle School. And at the age of 14, Bukowski missed six months of middle school as he underwent really painful surgery to deal with he had like acne vulgaris which is like a really hard form of acne which I guess comes from the boils he got because he was stressed out that's how bad it yeah his acne had gotten that bad where he needed to get surgery for it Accutane if only this must have been the 30s the depression before they cure polio they should have had Accutane yeah I had to walk around with this thing (laughs) already the 14 year old had to struggle with so much physical and emotional issues so to deal with this Bukowski would go to Baldwin Hills Branch Library and escape into books interesting he was a voracious reader and the love of literature would push him to try to write at the Baldwin Hills branches where he would write his first short story about a World War One pilot. It's weird that the library doesn't promote that more. They do. Oh, they do? No, I don't know about the Baldwin Hills branch, but I know LAPL's, it's like Ray Bradbury and Charles Bukowski right oh, here. I, see, I only ever, he- I hear Ray Bradbury and um, that, the poet who read a poem at- Oh, the inauguration. At the for, inauguration. Uh, yeah. They're like, and look, the, look at that, these great people, but I, I never hear them like, and Charles Bukowski, <laughs> which speaks to why he's in this episode. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I've read that enough times, but there's sort of like, he's like, he's always like third or fourth on the list. Yeah, like, I don't think there's pictures of Charles Bukowski up in the kids section. <laughs> What's in that paper bag? No, that's just the patrons. That <laughs> <laughs> that's just every normal person. He's holding it for somebody else. Uh, and what was his dad up to at this time? Around this time, Bukowski's father has lost his job and he was pretending to go to work every day, which is what <laughs> family annihilators do, just so you know. So by the age of 14, three things made up the reality of Charles Bukowski. Abuse, drinking and reading used as escapism, and writing. This was like his personality was these three things that fit together. As a teenager, all he could do was keep trudging on. He attended Susan Miller Dorsey High School in Crenshaw and continued being a below average student who would drag through most subjects, but then rush off to the library to read. He would outgrow Baldwin Hills Branch and graduated to the beautiful Central Library in downtown on 5th and Grand, where he first read John Fante's novel, Ask the Dust. Have you heard of this book before? Uh, yeah, I yeah. have. I, when we were flirting with the idea of doing a book club, I think someone had recommended, right. when we asked for suggestions, Ask the Dust. So a lot of people say this is the best LA book ever written. 
Never heard of it. Never heard of it. <laughs> hey, you're talking to the guy who broke P22. <laughs> so I haven't heard of it. I haven't heard of it. I, and I would know. Anyways, he finds Ask the Dust, which was published, I think, like around the same time. Like it was published in 1939, and he must have found it around that time. Like it wasn't like an ancient book sitting on the shelf. Like it was like a, a, a new <laughs> Hot one. Hot off the press. Hot off the presses, yeah. It was hugely influential to him. It was about a low life writer named Arturo Bandini in a tumultuous relationship living in Los Angeles, which like his entire life is that. <laughs> he would later write- And he had bad acne too. <laughs> he would later write the introduction to the reprint of Ask the Dusk. And he, here's a small snippet. Yes, Fanti had a mighty effect upon me. Not long after reading these books, I began living with a woman. She was a worse drunk than I was, and we had some violent arguments. And often I would scream at her, don't call me a son of a bitch. I am Arturo Bandini. Fantini was my god, and I knew the god should be left alone. One didn't bang at their door. Yet I like to guess about where he had lived on Angel's Flight, and I imagine it possible that he still lived there. Almost every day I walked by and thought, is that the window that Camilla crawled through? Is that the hotel door? Is that the lobby? I never knew. I do the same thing when I like form a residence of a famous person. I'm like, is that the window? That, yeah. Like, is that? And, like, it's, that was his like idol. Like, like the, a lot of fantasies were filled with John Fanti. Not even just like houses of famous people, but stories that take place in Los Angeles yeah. in fictional buildings and stuff. Yeah. I'll see a building that like, that could be the building that I thought the book happened in yeah. and I'll, and I'll stick to that forever <laughs> and think like, that's where <laughs> I took the esoteric Raymond Chandler tour like a million years ago. And they, you know, they took us to a bunch of spots, but sometimes I'll be at a red light. I forget what building it is on down in downtown, but they say that Chandler used to play chess in the lobby with somebody. And I'd pass a table every once in a while. I'm like, you dirty old bastard, <laughs> you drunk, nobody. Whenever I pass that trash can in Pershing square, I always think about speed. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> and I look at the trash can and I look up at the windows like, which one is the one that Dennis Happer lives? In 1939, he left school with a C average and enrolled in LACC to study journalism and well, English. Right. I mean, LACC otherwise he'd be in LABB or LAAA. That's very well, he should be in LAAA. LA colon AA. <laughs> if only he could get himself to an AA average. Very funny. Letters are very funny. Le- not just letters, numbers. Number, too, numbers are also quite funny. Like, let's say 109. LACC also likes to be like Charles Bukowski came here. Oh, really? But now that they're like, community was filmed here and also Charles <laughs> Bukowski. His home life, in particular, his bouts with his dad only got worse as he got older. His dad read some of his stories that Charles was writing and destroyed them. Because of this. This is why you don't tell your parents. This is why you don't tell your parents. <laughs> his dad would. I think he threw everything out of the window onto the lawn. <laughs> was he divorcing him? He was divorcing him. He was kicking him out for cheating. I remember reading a passage of like, they threw it out on the lawn that if Charles didn't keep meticulous care of, he'd get beaten <laughs> for. And his dad was throwing his writing. Like it's, it's like a like a poetic circle of, of, right. yeah, of pain. Because of stuff like this, Bukowski started finding other places to live. Returning home only, we had nothing left. He started bumming it up and finding crappy dumps to stay at. He sat in an apartment on 3rd and Flower. He stayed at a room uh, on Temple in Filipino Town. He left LA for Atlanta at some point and was living in a shack eating only candy bars. Uh, he'd come back, like I said. Why did like, he leave? Dude, candy bars love you way more than your dad does. Don't come back. He <laughs> was, soon- he, wait, wait, was he trying to start a podcast about candy? <laughs> Because if he was... The best meal I had in the last two days was this Three Musketeers. It <laughs> saved my life. Four cavities. Four cavities. Uh, so he soon dropped out of ICC, and after deciding... All he wanted to do was be a writer and a traveler. So this was like, he was going to give 100% of his attention to this. At the onset of World War II, he was urged by people, his friends, and I think his dad to enlist and serve his country. But because of his anti-authoritarian nature and having some weird pro-German sentiments because of his heritage, Uh-oh. he opposed the fighting in the war. Uh, I take back what I said about the Kim being a good guy. This is not the one where you want to take Germany's side. <laughs> Even though it's like probably 1941 and you don't know about oh, concentration camps. Yeah, you don't know. All German citizens had it implanted 
planted in their head no. of what was happening. <laughs> They're all sleeper cells. And if you say Budweiser too many times, you activate yeah, them. the most German beer there is. <laughs> made in Van Nuys. Van Nuys. Van Nuys. Uh, you know, that Dutch sounding name. <laughs> it didn't matter though. His feelings towards the war, people were trying to push him to do it. It didn't matter because in 1942, he got drafted to the military service. The following year, he reports to New Orleans draft board. He was, I guess, living in New Orleans at the time. And he sent them a letter saying he had no intention of serving due to personal philosophy. And after that, they gave him a psych evaluation and they they agreed with him that you don't need it. <laughs> You're actually um, quite antisocial. But they still like, they threw him in jail a year later because of this because like he was actively not adhering to the draft and even the, they cleared him they still like they ended up taking him custody in 1944 for draft evasion and threw him in the 17th century castle looking prison in Philadelphia called the Montamensing prison with a bond of a thousand dollars there he was given a second physical and psychological exam and once again they were like oh you're good like you don't need it we don't need you throughout all of this the rambling and the flirting with active duty Bukowski was in New York writing every day and constantly submitting and failing and trying in 1944 the same year as a draft deal, Bukowski got his first work published in Story Magazine. The short piece was titled Aftermath of a Lengthy Rejection Slip, and it was just that. It was like what he felt after getting... I'll read a little bit of it. It was always poetry, or did he ever do No, it, it was... Because he, he'd written novels, it was just like... You'll get a feel for when I read it. Okay. An honest story about dealing with a particularly detailed rejection letter. Here's the opening. <laughs> Lord <laughs> Almighty, it must be a hundred and nine... <laughs> I better do my Elvis doing Bukowski um, voice. <laughs> I, I imagine a similar voice. I thought about it. He has like a very high voice for oh, really? his look. Yeah, not that high. Hey, I remember hey, thinking. Everybody. I remember thinking hey, he sounded Bukowski. like Truman Capote. Oh yeah, but not so much. He just has like a higher voice. I guess authors don't have the voices you expect often. 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 No, author, I said. I no, said author. I'm saying often no, they no, don't no. have. I said authors. Don't authors. Have. This is our new uh, Abbott and Costello. Yeah, routine. this is our. Who's uh, on author? <laughs> often. That's really as far as the joke goes. I walked around outside and thought about it. It was the longest one I ever got. Usually they only said, sorry, this did not quite make the grade or sorry, this didn't quite work in or more often the regular printed rejection form. But this was the longest, the longest ever. It was from my story, my adventures in half a hundred rooming houses. I walked under a lamppost, took the little slip out of my pocket and reread it. Dear Mr. Pukowski, Again, this is a conglomeration of extremely good stuff and other stuff so full of idealized prostitutes, morning after vomiting scenes, misanthropy, praise for suicide, etc., that is not quite for a magazine or any circulation at all. This is, however, pretty much a saga of a certain type of person, and in it, I think you've done an honest job. Possibly we will print you sometime, but I don't exactly know when. That depends on you. Sincerely yours, Whit Burnett. Oh, I need the signature, the long H that twisted into the end of the W and the beginning of the B, which dropped halfway down the page. I put the slip back in my pocket and walked down the street. I felt pretty good. Here I only had been writing two short years. It took Hemingway 10 years, and Sherwood Anderson, he was 40 before he got published. I guess I would have to give up drinking and women of ill fame, though. Whiskey was hard to get anyhow, and wine was ruining my stomach. Millie, though? Millie, that would be harder. Much harder. That was the first little chunk of his short story that got... Again, this was his story. Like the this first, was the story that broke him out of prison. Uh, this is it. Yeah, this is a story that the first story got published. It's that's his writing. It's just like what he's going through, what he's feeling, dealing with drinking and women and rejection and all his feelings. It's very honest. It's very like yeah. Honestly. It sounds um hard to read. Is it not for me? I mean. <laughs> I don't like... Well, for a happy person. For a happy person. Uh, oh, yeah. Emotionally hard to read? Yeah, probably. Uh, no, no. Uh, probably. Are there big words in this, Greg? I mean, like, it, it doesn't deal with any frivolities, which is what always weighs down stuff I want to read. That's why I took to Dashiell Hammett and Raymond Chandler, because it's so 
to the point. To the point. I'm like because of Dashiell Hammett was a uh, detective for a while, so all the writing is like correspondence. So, like <laughs> he did this. I went. I followed him here. This is a, like the opening of one of Raymond Chandler's books is talking about them destroying the front of a building, and they're talking about something. And I'm, I was like the Judge Judy meme of like, let's go, like smacking my watch and pounding the table. <laughs> you no, know like, I don't let's know memes. Go. You know, I, I I only know Spider Man meme. I don't know this <laughs> meme. So, anyways, he felt really good about his first story getting published. After that, he fled New York for warmer climates and returned to Los Angeles, taking up menial jobs once again. He took jobs like a stockroom boy at Steers Roebuck, a truck loader working in the graveyard ship at a bakery, package wrapping and box filling in the cellar of a ladies' sportswear shop. He worked at a tool warehouse and many department stores. For a 10-year stretch after he got his first published story, he would write less and less and drink more and more. A devastating amount of alcohol every day to cope with life and all its big and little traumas. In 1948, he was arrested for public drunkenness, one of the many times this happens, and is held in jail overnight, which is like... It just becomes like, oh, my monthly like jail. <laughs> We're sending you back to Philadelphia. <laughs> <laughs> that same year, 1948, Bukowski meets someone he called the love of his life, which was Janet Cooney Baker, who was an alcoholic barfly 10 years older than him. Uh, their relationship was tumultuous, and the entire decade they were together like on and off, living together, then breaking up, and then finding each other again. Most likely married and divorced at some point. And she was his equal in thriving at rock bottom. Like, she would match him drink for drink every night. So sometimes you can you can find your equal, and it just makes you... Like, the love of your life could be the worst thing that's ever happened to you. <laughs> How old is he now 1948 he's probably 28 20. almost okay. 30 he was born in 1920 does he ever become famous in his lifetime mm-hmm. oh okay yeah That's not worldwide him. famous it kind of comes from cult underground and by the time he dies i think he's pretty well known okay i thought it was like a van gogh sort of thing oh no 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 it's funny that we talk about like tortured artists uh <laughs> and we're like what a scumbag but van gogh, van gogh oh, but he was french <laughs> it's okay when you're french it's okay when you're french Greg, when you're french they let you do it in france there's no such thing as mental illness <laughs> How you say, I'm fine. <laughs> I'm fine. <laughs> All the while, they are rooming in cheap places from Skid Row to Pico Union and Westlake, a lot in this little area there, uh, like the periphery of downtown. The same year that Bukowski and Jane are evicted from the Aragon Apartments for fighting and drinking, 1950, is the same year that Bukowski takes one of the more important of his humdrum jobs. He becomes a clerk at the Foy Station Post Office. Oh, yeah. It's a temp. <laughs> Finally, the thing he's known for. It very, it's very you. <laughs> It's a temp job for Christmas. So no, okay. It's both of us. <laughs> this guy is a little bit of both of us. It's a temp job for Christmas, so he'll take it. But two years later, he's able to return to a permanent position working at the Sanford Station. Drinking and working at the post office was his entire existence at this point. He really wasn't writing that much. After he got his first story published, I think that he thought it would be easier. And it was one small victory, right. a massive Won the war of losing. battle, lost the war. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> so he was continually after that. I think he thought it would be easier to get published again, and it just wasn't. So he kind of like was discouraged. I can't relate to this guy there's a really great quote from his novel women uh, where he describes alcoholism and i think i think about this quote a lot this quote should be on the walls of bethmo but it's not that's the problem with drinking i thought as i poured myself a drink if something bad happens you drink in an attempt to forget if something good happens you drink in order to celebrate and if nothing happens you drink to make something happen alcoholism baby <laughs> welcome to bevmo welcome to bevmo <laughs> there's just like a somber employee standing at the entrance so that just recites that to you when you walk in and then the lights come on welcome to bevmo welcome to bevmo <laughs> we've got mead <laughs> 10 years later 
1954, when his excessive drinking puts Charles Bukowski in L.A. County Hospital for nine days, suffering from a bleeding ulcer that would have likely killed him. It didn't. Getting this close to death scared him out of his funk, though, and after this, he would actually start writing again with the intent and focus and drive. He quits the post office the following year, although he's soon asked to be rehired, like, I think, like a month later. And when Jane vanishes from his life, he has a short-lived marriage to a Texas poet editor named Barbara Fry. Now, I saw photos. I'm like, what's Barbara Fry? I want to see what all these women that he was hooking up with look like. I don't know why. It <laughs> thought it mattered. Uh, there, For your th- fantasy. There's a photo of him and a very unpleasant looking <laughs> person who looks like, oh, that looks like his equal in everything. That right, looks like the manifestation right. of all his writing yeah. in one pr- He created being. her out of dirt. And I wanted to know who that person was and it turned out to not really be anybody. But I, So I was looking through photos of him and all the love, the people he married. and I saw photos of her and she had seemed at first to be a little person. It wasn't until like three articles later that I found out what was actually going on. She had two missing vertebrae from her neck and because of that, she had a curvature of the spine which gave her like a permanent hunch which sounds incredibly painful. So basically she has has no neck so she sort of is always hunching and stuff. So she was an editor for a Texas literary magazine and her and Bukowski had been sending letters back and forth and in the letter she told him she was afraid no one would marry her because of her condition. So Bukowski who had never met her wrote back that he would marry her and he did and they got (laughs) married. And after reading... After reading a little bit about their marriage, it's clear that she settled. She was the one who was... He's such an angry, sad mess, and she seems time and time again to try to get him help. Why would... Why would either of them agree to this? I don't. I don't. The loneliest people. Yeah, this is. This like, is like the bottom. They both mail order brided each other, <laughs> and they were both like, "God damn!" <laughs> yeah, she tried really hard to get his life together. Like, got him a car, tried to get him working and a job, tried to get him published, and it just he just wouldn't have it. Like, he's just such a sad self mess, self destructive mess that like. Any progress feels dishonest, so he bombs, like self-sabotage, like he mm. just bombs it. Mm. After reading a little about this the marriage- sounding a lot more familiar the more I hear about him. They divorced after two years, and she sadly would die from mysterious circumstances in India after this. I read on the website, she was quoted as saying, despite publishing him, she was generally unimpressed with his writing skills. Which is probably the meanest thing you could tell somebody. (laughs) That was her wedding vow. (laughs) The rest of the 50s is just more hardships for this guy. More post office, some night art classes at LACC, more drinking. His parents die within a short time frame. He gets divorced from Barbara after two years, like I said. He attempts to kill himself the Sylvia Plath way, and it doesn't work. He faces more rejection in his writing, but he keeps at it this time. He's writing, and he's getting rejected, but he's What year is this now? It's like mid-50s, probably the end of the 50s. So he's he's in his mid to late 30s. He once again- This tracks. He once again- and easy. <laughs> Save the revelations for later, okay? He once again reconnects with Jane, but she drinks herself to death in 1962, the love of his life. The characters Betty in Post Office and Laura in Factotum are pretty much based on, on her. She's more or less portrayed by Faye Dunaway in the movie Barfly, but we'll get to that. Later in his life, he wrote a poem called Barfly for Jane. I'm going to read it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, snap at the end of it. <laughs> Please don't applaud. Applauding is crass. Yeah. Just shout. That's what the bourgeois do. Just smoke your dube really hard. Jane, who's been dead for 31 years, never could have imagined that I would write a screenplay of our drinking days together and that it would be made into a movie and that a beautiful movie star would play her part. He wrote the he movie? Wrote, yeah, he wrote the movie. Wow. Uh, or he like helped write it with the director, I think. And that a beautiful movie star would play her part. I can hear Jane now, a beautiful movie star. Oh, for Christ's sake. Jane, that's showbiz. So go back to sleep, dear, because no matter how hard they tried, they couldn't find anybody exactly like you, and neither can I. And in summation, Jane, get me off this crazy thing. (laughs) Called Called love. (laughs) That's So I Married an Expert. I can't take that. That's Mike Myers. So Wait a minute. 
Mike Myers or Michael Myers? Mike Myers is in is a, in So I Married an Axe Murderer. And Michael Myers is an axe a knife murderer. He's a knife murderer. Please, babysitter killer. They, someone's got to change their name. He, there's only one person in control of that. God. God. A God, a.k.a. John Carpenter. Which is whenever we want to legally change the name, we have to go to the church. Um, <laughs> please, God. Please, please, God. God, are you there? It's me, Margaret, but I want to be Judy. <laughs> I'm more of a Jane, really. <laughs> By 1959, Bukowski realized that in 20 years of writing, he had earned $47. <laughs> Sound familiar? God, I, 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 want, I, want to, I want to not identify with this guy. Oh, he makes it so easy. <laughs> uh, just substitute drinking for eating candy and you'll got it. <laughs> Living in a shack in Atlanta <laughs> eating candy bars. This guy sounds pretty honest. He was rising the ranks at the post office, but it wasn't what he wanted. He wanted to write. So in 1959, through either self-publishing or underground publishing houses, I'm not really sure how chapbooks of poetry work, he gets Flower Fist and Bestial Whale published. Okay. It's either, it's not a, it's he doesn't have to really appeal to anybody at this point to get something published because it's either I don't know a chapbook sounds more like a zine of its day where you just like have somebody print it up for you. So he starts submitting a lot of poems to small literary journals and begins finally making contacts that will last him. Like John Webb, who ran a magazine called Outsider, he's getting more attention, getting more poems published in underground poetry journals that, like I said, the zines of their days. An editor of Nomad read fifteen of his poems live on KPFK, but Bukowski didn't hear it because he didn't want to have to buy an. FM radio. I laughed at that and then I looked up. Somebody noted that it was probably $75 at the time. Like, hey, you need the money. <laughs> because of these chapbooks and self-publishing things, more people are starting to see it because it's actually written down somewhere where people are looking on these small independent things. So he's standing out from those and getting more and more attention. So like through these early 60s, late 50s, early 60s, people are starting to actually give a care about his work. <laughs> they gave a hoot. They gave a hoot. He was getting reviewed by bigger critics now and he was winning all these small scale awards while continually pumping out poems. He would not stop because now you don't have to submit stuff really. You just are publishing straight from the, yeah. the pulpit. I mean, that's kind of kind of what we did. <laughs> hey, am I going to say no? K-Rock wouldn't broadcast our show so we made our so own K-Rock. So I made my own Elvis parody. <laughs> now K-Rock has to play my music. They play Weird Al, don't they? He's still drinking, still getting arrested, but it seems like all this anguish was now ricocheting into poetry. Like all the trouble he was, the chaos that he always okay. created, now it has like a funnel to filter through yeah, and end up somewhere. harnessing his chaos. Harnessing <laughs> chaos, exactly. In 1963, he released It Catches My Heart in Its Hands, new and selected poems, 1955-1963. Because of this, Bukowski has become an underground hit in LA poetry scene. His brutally honest and incredibly straightforward poems about life at the bottom is free of pretension, and because of that... His work stands out. Drinking, homelessness, sex workers. This is stuff that readers in the 60s were excited to read about too. Not clear about how much of a like a low-life dirtbag swagger was performance to stay on brand or not. Because by this time he had built up a brand of like, oh, he's that guy. He's the gross guy. Yeah, he's the gross guy. He, you know, he gambles at the racetracks and he drinks all day and he God, he's getting more and more relatable. I famously made three dollars at Famously, the one time you were there. <laughs> not even there to you were there to watch a concert. You weren't even there to gamble, but you just happened to <laughs> gamble and look at you now dirtbag i mean they did have a statue of me it looked a little bit like sea biscuit but it was me yeah we all know we all know what they were going for it's a metaphor he saw biscuits he ate biscuits <laughs> i'm on a sea biscuit diet 
Oh my God. I eat horses. I eat horses, don't don't I? I eat horses, don't I? So about staying on his dirtbag brand, he was quoted as saying, I got my act up. I wrote vile but interesting stuff that made people hate me, but that made them curious about this Bukowski. I threw bodies off my porch into the night. I sneered at hippies. I was in and out at drunk takes. A lady accused me of rape. Like all of this was like his brand. Go ahead. <laughs> you had me up to a certain point of like, this sounds like me doing stand-up comedy. And then you said one thing and I did not want to say that anymore. Although... A lot of alley comedy is that. Yeah. But yeah, no, like it wasn't hard for him to stay on brand. Right. He himself wondered how much of this was performance. To stay yeah. On brand. I was going to ask is, is he like, at what point are you kind of like, you know what? I want to stop drinking. But. Yeah. I can't because my, my brand, yeah. my character, uh, he doesn't know. He also has come out and said, I have no idea where Bukowski in the books ends and the Bukowski in real life. It's, I mean, that's progress in a way. In a way, yeah, recognizing that. But also, like, because his writing is so honest and not veiled at all, like, it's all the same. Yeah. Like, you need to realize that. got to be unhappy to be funny. There's, I mean, not to talk about another awful human being. Deconstructing Harry, uh, which is a Woody Allen movie about, like, the only way I can cope with my life and look at it is when I write. And I look at it and I'm like, oh, that's what I'm going through. I didn't realize that. Cool. That, this is what is important to me. I couldn't realize it in my own brain because it's so full of awful. Uh, it took the brain of Woody Allen. Uh, so clearly this idea of Bukowski that the literary world had of him had to be upheld and he actively fed it. Like I said, it wasn't hard to do. Around this time, he meets a woman named Frances Smith. And the following year, she'd give birth to Charles Bukowski's only child, Marina Louise. Around this time, he puts an ad out in Olay, which read, Plea of interest. Anybody who wishes Charles Bukowski to write a book of prose, whatever it is in his head will come out in prose form, certainly to be colossal, whatever it is, should donate $500 and he will do the trick. So send dollar sign to 5124 DeLong Prix Avenue, Los Angeles, 27, California. (laughs) Okay, so now he has a Patreon account? He has a Patreon, and for a certain amount of money, he will write poems. He will write poems to you from around Los Angeles and send Send them to to you. you. Handwritten. Handwritten, by the way. (laughs) Maybe desperate for money, new dad, sure, but also like confident and experienced and renowned enough now to put it out there like that. Okay. And probably got some, I don't know if that actually got responses or not, but probably. In my experience, kind of. Eh, (laughs) Not what you hoped, but surprised that anything happened at all. (laughs) Also, 5124 DeLong between Kingsley and Normandy and Hollywood is now referred to as Bukowski Court. That's where he was living. That's where his daughter and his and francis smith all live together is his daughter still alive i think so wow i think she is weird to think born in 65 she's not that I mean, she, yeah i mean unless something she'd be happens like, yeah unless something happens she'd be in her 60s now. theoretically she is out there she yeah. may be among us be careful where you invoke the name be careful where you bukowski yeah in 1965 he got the attention of john martin who founded black sparrow press who would be his longtime I put Punisher, Jesus, <laughs> publisher and ally. Eh, what's an editor, but a, what are you to me, but a Punisher? That's why I have all those Punisher stickers <laughs> next to my Blue Lives Matter stickers. That's what it is. I publish materials and punish my friends. John Martin sold his rare book collection and used the 49,000 to start Black Sparrow Press and published four Bukowski poems in the first issue of, of his new magazine, paying him $30 per poem. It was John Martin in 1966 who first urged Bukowski to write a novel and three years later in 1969 offered Bukowski $100 a month to quit the post office <laughs> and write full time, a hundred dollars a month to live, and he said yes. <laughs> oh, I, I, I'm. I mean, is that a lot or a little for back then? It was a lot, but he was making two hundred seventy-five dollars oh, a month okay. from the so post office, so he had to come down a little bit. But he had, from some reason, I read somewhere he had like a good chunk of savings, probably because he, I think he sold his parents' house. 
had a lot of money from All the right. post he's office. He's a nepo baby. He's a nepo baby. It. The only reason he's a dirtbag is because his family <laughs> is dirtbags. His family got him like halfway towards dirtbag <laughs> from birth. It's 1969. He is 49 years old, 50 years old when he first gets published and becomes a full-time writer. This is... Um, it's at the same time uh, encouraging to hear stuff like this and deeply discouraging to hear yeah. stuff like this. I mean, like, he gets a pass because there was a 10-year chunk where he only drank and didn't <laughs> write. So, like, he could have hit it at He could have been 39. Yeah. <laughs> imagine. God, imagine making it at 39. Um, <laughs> Bukowski finally quit the post office. Yay. And took all those experiences for his first autobiographical novel, 1971's Post Office. He sold 75,000. <laughs> Get pop- over it. He sold 75,000 copies in the U.S. and 500,000 copies abroad. He was very famous in Europe, uh, which is you and Chuck Berry, brother. Uh, you and Dizzy Gillespie, brother. Hey, you and Woody Allen. Yeah. You, yeah. Uh, and he Roman Polanski. <laughs> And he was in his early 50s when his writing career hit its first milestone. He also wrote for Hustler at around this time and started his own short-lived magazine, Laugh Literary and the Man the Humping Guns, and earned $200 a night from the rowdy poetry readings that would often end in drunken brawls. He continued with Notes of a Dirty Old Man, which is like the first thing I read of his. That's what I've heard of. Yeah, Notes of a Dirty Old Man. Which is probably where I get most of my impression of, well, he says he's a dirty old man, so he's a a dirty old man. I agree. (laughs) We all agree. Uh, Yeah, that's probably the first thing I read from him. And I was like completely degenerate stuff. And right. at the time, I'm like, I need more degenerate stuff. <laughs> and I hit a point where I'm like, no more degenerate stuff. <laughs> What's Flannery O'Connor up to? I'm like, oh no, she's bad too. <laughs> What's a nice author up to? Uh, uh, Ernest Hemingway. <laughs> <laughs> F. Scott Fitzgerald never drank, right? Oh no. <laughs> because of the notes of a dirty old man, the FBI opened up a file on Bukowski Whoa. having to do with his contributions to an underground magazine, Open City. Like a pornography? No, I mean, I assume they think it's like a pornography A little thing. bit, yeah. I mean, the title is very pornographic. The, the underground column, I won't read the title here because you'll freak out, but <laughs> it's it's kind of a pornographic We'll thing. read it off the air Yeah, when, when the on-air sign goes off. It's kind of unclear why they opened the file. It might be pornography stuff, but a lot of some people, at least this article I read, thought it had to do with a story about an inebriated woman releasing $5,000 worth of pet birds into the air. And after post, is that how the parrots showed up around? That's how the parrots showed up, the like green screaming parrots. They're screaming because they're like, "Get me away from Bukowski!" Uh, well, he he passed on his uh, trauma to yeah, the parrots. Birds. After Post Office came another autobiographical novel, Factotum, in 1975, which they made a really good movie of in 2005, where Matt Dillon plays Chansky. Okay. Yeah, it's really. I mean, I liked it a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So Factotum, 1975, Women in 1978, Hamon Rye in 1982, which is about his childhood and teenage years, which is of course what a <laughs> what a light read that was. Is that uh, is that anything have to do with Ham from the Breakfast Club? Yeah, it's Ham from the Breakfast Club, and Ham is Holden Caulfield. Hamon Rye. Uh, he became friends with a manager of a dirty bookstore owner, an artist named George DiCaprio. What? Really? Yeah. George DiCaprio just keeps popping up. Yeah, he does. He's, he's the weirdo friend of various different artists yeah. from LA history. Through the 70s, Bukowski was a cult literary icon, adding the upper crust literary art folk into his social circle of like junks and junkies. To him, like everyone's invited. Like, well, yeah, he got party. everybody hooked on smack. Yeah. And this is like what I, you know, we always talk about what makes LA stories like Raymond Chandler what makes Raymond Chandler noir different and it's like the highs and lows like the mm-hmm. the biggest movie star in the world and a guy selling like Charles Bukowski's yeah, drug dealer yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> they can end up running in the same circle in LA and not everywhere in the world that can happen <laughs> in 1975 the LA Times reported he was earning $20,000 a year from his novels appearances and selling his film rights again is that a lot back then I don't know I mean I feel like 
I don't. I mean, twenty thousand dollars in nineteen seventy-five. I bet it's a lot of money. Like, not enough <laughs> to live on, but you can brag. He's got to go back to the post office. He was profiled in Rolling Stone in nineteen seventy-six and the subject of a documentary in nineteen seventy-seven. At the end of the seventies, he was being commissioned to write a screenplay that would take ten years to come into fruition and would later become the movie Barfly, starring Mickey Rourke as Bukowski's alter ego, Chiansky, and. That- Fate- that is perfect casting. It's perfect, especially that era of Mickey <laughs> yeah, Rourke. Yeah, that is great. He wasn't that impressed with Mickey Rooney. I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, nobody is. Yeah, I thought you meant Mickey Rooney was cast as him, and that would be perfect. That would be perfect. He wasn't that impressed with Mickey Rourke, but I think Mickey Rourke tried to do Bukowski's voice, <laughs> and he was like, no, that's not what I sound like. But was- We can do. Hi, hi, I'm Bukowski. Hi. <laughs> um, uh, and Faye Dunaway, <laughs> I hadn't transitioned quite as much as I. Um, and then, Charles uh, Bukowski said. And like I said earlier, Faye Dunaway was played a version of Jane Cooley. For the movie, they even used a real apartment that Bukowski and Cooley had shared for a scene. And he, I think, if I read correctly, filmmakers didn't know that. And Bukowski's like, you know, you know, we both <laughs> lived here, right? So like the casting, the scouting people, the scouting people, like, let's find the grossest apartment we could find. <laughs> and Bukowski's like, yep, this is it. <laughs> How'd you guys do your research? He goes in and he has like socks that he's taking out of the drawer. He has like a hidden bottle of like <laughs> like whiskey like behind the floorboards. Bukowski was pretty involved in the movie. Even he cameos in in the bar scene. Mm-hmm. And he would later write the novel Hollywood about the making of the movie. So that that's Barfly. Barfly has that reputation. A lot of people really love Barfly. I hadn't really, I'd seen like clips of it, but I never watched all of it. But I probably should do never that. Never even heard of it. It's one of those sad drunk movies that <laughs> oh, sad drunks watch and they're like, yeah, it's not that bad, but it's. It's that bad. <laughs> in 1988, Bukowski discovered he had leukemia and, tubercul- uh, and oh tuberculosis God. in the same year. And it, this would pretty much force him to stop drinking. It theoretically should, <laughs> it would force one person <laughs> On to paper, stop it made him stop drinking. On paper, it made him reconsider. This was the second scare for Bukowski, and he was seemingly tried to clean it for good. He kind of struggled with it. He got married to a woman named Linda Lee, I think, Beckley? Beely? B E I G H L E. Hard to pronounce. Bailey? Bailey, maybe. And they had lived in Los Feliz together. And according to Bukowski.net timeline, <laughs> which is incredible, by the way, I read this passage and it made me laugh like out loud. He took her to Disneyland for her birthday and, quote, has a good time despite his firmly held belief that Mickey Mouse has no soul. <laughs> Very funny. He's like talking to the guy in the Mickey Mouse costume. Yeah. <laughs> Him and Goofy are just sitting on a bench like, that Mickey, man, he's got a real problem. I don't know what he's running from, but keep running, guy. Near the end of his life, he was living in San Pedro, which is probably how he came into contact with Doc Guthrie. Yeah, Take- where does that fit into this story? <laughs> At what point is, is that the, the turning mean, point in his life? I imagine it happened very late in life because I think, <laughs> I don't know when he lived in San Pedro, but I know he had died in San Pedro. So it was probably near the end of his life. Leukemia took Bukowski in 1994 and it's obituary Charles Bukowski. God, 1994, 1994. he was still alive? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Uh, so- I mean, I wasn't born yet, but still. I was born, was it? It's 2023 now. I was born in 2024. (laughs) I'm just sort of like a thing floating around waiting to be born. (laughs) In its obituary of Charles Bukowski, the New York Post used a photo of Mickey Rourke and Barfly instead of a photo of the poet himself. (laughs) I mean... If you're Charles Bukowski, I think I think you'd, you'd be pretty happy that. with that. Please, don't. I want when I die, I want Faye Dunaway's picture <laughs> to be in the newspaper. All On second thought, I want Mickey Rooney, but in Breakfast at Tiffany's, oh. I want that to win on my obituary. He was a man of class. An elegant taste, taste, a man of taste, sympathy for others, a progressive fighter of social justice. <laughs> And this is a photo of, I forget his name in the movie. A hero. A hero. A hero to the oppressed. 
to the bullied. So his obituary has a photo of somebody else in it. Someone better That's looking a person. great way to end his life. But a memorial plaque is placed at his house in Andernach, Germany, where he was born. And the apartment oh, at 503 Union Drive in Westlake was renamed by the new owners as the Bukowski. If you're a male urinating in Coles, you'll see Bukowski's name over a urinal and it reads okay. Charles Bukowski peed here. All right. I only ever got the Mickey Cohen Oh, yeah. Mickey Cohen. Bukowski is another one. He lived through a lot of awful things and came into this world feeling unloved and left it being remembered for embracing the ugly parts of life wholly. His life showed the literary world that people living on the streets and drinking in dark bars have value. And even these people have profound thoughts and are worth talking to and listening to. And amongst his many poems, and he wrote wrote a lot of poems, I remember watching a documentary on Bukowski called, I think it was Bukowski Born Into This. And it reminded me of this really great poem that I want to end on. Let's see. Oh, hang on. Let me start playing Burning Love. Yeah, Burning Love. The instrumental. (laughs) This is only a snippet of the poem because the poem is quite long and only the part that I like is right up front. A good chunk in the middle. (laughs) The shoelace. This is just a snippet. A woman, a tire that's flat, a disease, a desire, fears in front of you, fears that hold so still you can study them like pieces on a chessboard. It's not the large things that send a man to the madhouse. Death he's ready for, murder, incest, robbery, fire, flood. No, it's the continuing series of small tragedies that send a man to the madhouse. Not the death of his love, but a shoelace that snaps with no time left. What does that mean? Uh, The big things, you're kind of ready for the big tragic things, but sometimes such a small little thing will just break you. Okay, that's sad. Yeah. Poetry, I'm so bad with poetry. Me too. Poetry has to be read so it has to rhyme let's just put it, it has to rhyme it has to be about like a cute little bird or something nothing bad can ever happen in a poem uh it has to be coupled with like a little drawing or something so i know what they're talking so i rem- remember that yeah. it's actually just about a bird and, and it has like, to be written by shell silverstein it, the only way i'll accept it uh yeah i'm not great with poem poems have to be like written in simple language for me to like oh wow that's profound but if it's like golden sunsets at autumn yeah. like, what the hell does that mean the flowery barley and the, yeah. the barley is like a metaphor for four different people from history i love when people explain like Robert Frost to me because I'm like oh that's really smart oh that's really cool (laughs) or Wordsworth I'm like that's really smart but then sometimes like when I read poems it needs to be spoken in plain language for me like oh this is honest it's like I think we talked about that with like contemporary art where we see it and like okay and then someone explains it and we're like this is the the I must own this (laughs) this giant toothbrush I have to put it in my apartment It's a metaphor for this world needs to be brushed clean. <laughs> There's plaque in the world. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Make sure to floss the This world's streets. gums are receding. Uh, and I, I should just end on anyone who's a huge fan of Al Lee and Bukowski should check out the timeline at Bukowski.net because like I was saying, it has everything that he was going through year by year of his life, what was happening in LA history, what he was doing for a job and all the addresses he was staying at. And it's it, thorough. It's thorough. So if you're somebody who wants to do a tour of Bukowski's life, that's a place to start. And that's Charles Bukowski's life. What about Jumbo's clown room? You went to Jumbo's clown room. Okay, good. Thank you. You're, you're welcome. <laughs> you. I, thought we, I thought we knocked out of the park really Now we can end Now we can say Jumbo's clown room. Yeah. My guy is not a great guy. Mm-hmm. Bukowski doesn't sound, I mean, aside from maybe some accusations made about him that yeah, I don't yeah, know yeah. what happened. And they're probably true. Um, okay. Well, yeah, not a great guy. But. Not a great guy. Like a lot of not great guys, you you might have some unwarranted sympathy sometimes that you resent. That you resent. Yeah. Definitely a sleaze bag. Definitely a sleaze bag, bag. Degenerate, but embraced it and made it part of his ethos. He's one of few that their reputation is like that. A lot of other writers just like Kerouac's on the road, but also he's a fall down alcoholic yeah, that, who is a yeah. hedonist and uh, constantly probably made women's life terrible around him. <laughs> Goes for all probably the beat poets. He's he fits perfectly into that that group. <laughs> well, look. Before we get even sleazier, yes. we're going to take a little break. You're going to hear a little ad. You're going to like it. I promise there won't be any more Elvis when we come back after this. 
You come back, it's Elvis Costello. Great podcast. We both went to radio, the one Elvis Costello song we know. And we'll be right back. Is this ad space haunted by a ghost? Is it haunted by a ghost town? This episode is haunted by the Ghost Town podcast. You're right, Greg. I knew you could sense something. Yeah, well, you know, third eye. You know, third eye blind. Third eye blind. <laughs> yeah. Chumbawamba. So this episode, to reiterate, is brought to you by the Ghost Town podcast. We've talked about them before. They're hosted by Jason Horton and Rebecca Lieb, and they discuss and explore some of the most mysterious and interesting events in history. But in particular, they have a lot of LA-centric episodes, which is mm. why we think you not you greg you are adoring fans that are i assume sitting in front of their ipods on their stomachs with like their legs in the air and their like arms under their chin so this fictional person we assume that you would like the ghost town podcast because they've covered la stories like the 1985 ross dress for less methane explosion they also have covered the sunset strip curfew riots and of course Mm -hmm. The Synanon Cult, a story near and dear to my life because my old landlord is the guy who got bit by the rattlesnakes. I hope that they mentioned that. I hope they find a way to incorporate you into every story since that's all that's important. I don't understand sarcasm, so me too. (laughs) So you can listen to these stories and all sorts of stories from all over the world with the Ghost Town podcast. They have two episodes a week that you can listen to. So again, that's the Ghost Town podcast, two episodes a week. You can listen to them anywhere podcast. Podcasts are found. So, Ghost Town Podcast, Greg. Boo. Well, Greg, it's January 1st, but guess what? You still need a calendar. So we just wanted to remind you that we still have some 2023 Los Angeles history calendars available for sale. If you still want one, we still got them. If you're not familiar, every single day of the year has a different... If you're not not familiar... Calendars, each box is a day. So we've got January. There's 31 of those. I know you'll think like, oh, there's 31 for all of them. Guess what? February's got a surprise for you. It's going to throw you off. And <laughs> you're gonna... like, well, the next month surely is going to have 28 too. Oh, brother. Don't even get me started on leap years. Every single day of the year has a different fact from Los Angeles mm-hmm. history on it. And we are selling these. We've got beautiful pictures from yes. historic and original from all around Los Angeles. These are going for $35, shipping included. You could go to lameeklypodcast.com slash merch to order one today and sure do can. it because uh, we don't have too many left. Th- uh, that is a threat. That is a threat. <laughs> so, so again, that's $35 shipping included, lameeklypodcast.com slash merch. And uh, let's get back to a f- talking about a few more of these sleazy these dirtbags. I'm more interested the more I read about them. <laughs> the more I hear about dirtbags, the more I <laughs> want to be a dirtbag. <laughs> okay, I'm ready to hear about another dirtbag. That isn't you for some reason. I don't know why this wasn't just an autobiographical yeah. piece. <laughs> We've got two biographies <laughs> for you here today. Uh, two of the worst people, the most notorious people. One of them I heard hit P22. Yeah, with this, let's just say it, blue truck. <laughs> That's now covered in the unmistakable smear of mountain lion blood. That's how you know. This ain't your ordinary cat. Yeah. It's a big cat. I mean, there's a lot of cat blood on that yeah. thing too, but that one that you can one. tell is mountain lion cat it's blood. Got taxi, it's that taxi driver vermilion color. Yeah. And it's sprayed everywhere. <laughs> 
and it was really graphic. Greg walked out of the house with his blue truck hidden under his sleeve, and he went and (laughs) took out P-22. Oh, I can't believe he did it. Anyway, he's a degenerate, not me. Yeah, not me, a good boy. Noted good boy. So we've got one more person for you. This one, he's come in and out of a few stories before that we've told. Yeah. He is a legend. He is a villain. Mm -hmm. He is a hero in his own mind. And here I was thinking that I was the Gaston of Los Angeles history. Then in comes a man who is almost literally Gaston and makes me realize that I'm just Mrs. Potts. (laughs) I'm talking about a figure who swirled around the sidelines a few of our stories, but now it's time to give him his unearned due, Miguel Leonis. I cannot wait. Leonis family keeps coming up. There is no family. It's just him. Oh, who's the... (laughs) Well, he okay. So we've talked about him a lot, and in the last episode, Cece Devere had uh, her ghost story mm-hmm. was from the Ligonis Adobe and told a little bit about his story. I mean, there was sort of a family, but not really. Yeah. So this sort of got in my head of like, well, let's let's do the full story of Miguel Leonis. Okay. But it's kind of tricky with him because a few of the events of his past are well documented, mm-hmm. but overall, this he's kind of a muddy figure. Okay, like there's not a lot of hard facts. He was apparently... He's like a blues singer, like a muddy figure. Yeah. Muddy Waters, muddy figure. BB Vague. (laughs) All of the greats. All the greats. He was apparently illiterate, so he didn't keep many recordings of his doings. And he was also the kind of guy who felt his memory was all the bookkeeping he needed. So the truth of what really happened to him kind of died along with him. I feel like if you're a degenerate enough, you'd rather have the myth survive than like here's what I was thinking on this day. Like, no, 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 don't put that on paper. Like, we'll just remember you the way you were. (laughs) We'll just remember you as poorly as we already do. Yeah, like the the vagueness probably helps him a little bit. (laughs) He also did not have many people close to him in his life, and most people who knew him feared him. So a lot of what might have once been truth about him has been warped into legend. But let's start at the beginning, or as he would say, le debut. (laughs) That's because this man, how you say was French, Greg. Whoa! You already knew this. He was Basque, the big Basque, as he was uh, he was right. known as. He was born Michel Leonis, October 20th, 1822, in Combo-les-Bon in the southwest... South, so, sorry, uh, I lived in France for a while. We say southwest. Uh, <laughs> so, Combo-les-Bon in the southwest Basque country of France. Again, he's Gaston. Yeah. He was the son of a government official with nine siblings. He son had, of a government so, official. <laughs> He had green eyes. He was six foot four and, dare I say, full of muscles. Again, Gaston. Yeah. So wouldn't you know it, he was not a great guy. Again, he's Gaston. <laughs> he And he had a little friend uh, who did his taxes or something, but was also like his wingman. I don't uh, know. Yeah. He got involved with illegal ways of making money and his area being near the border with Spain. By age 20, he was leading a smuggling network between France and Spain. But he wasn't great at it because the government caught on. And supposedly, this is a lot of this is supposedly. Okay. Uh, he was questioned by some tax officials. Uh-huh. And when he didn't have the legal answers needed, he threw them off a cliff. (laughs) (laughs) He threw the answers off a cliff? Yeah, he took the forms and attached to those forms were a bunch of government tax (laughs) officials. So supposedly he threw a bunch of like poindexters that came from the French IRS. Now, either the shame of this whole nefarious endeavor or the fact that he was now being hunted. Oh yeah, no, someone who does that feels shame. (laughs) No, no, no. The shame he brought his family. He did not feel shame. Okay. Or he was just being hunted by the cops or just because Miguel had to flee the country. But where to go? 
Around this time, the mid-1800s, a lot of Basques were coming to Los Angeles. The Basques are coming to town. They're Basque! They're Basque. <laughs> mid-18th century? No, mid-1800s. Oh, mid-1800s. Not, mid, not mid-18th century. I was very century. confused. Okay. They had originally come to California for gold, the Basques. Right. But once it became clear that the gold rush was coming to an end, many of them searched for different areas to apply their skills, which were in mining. One place they found was the beautiful, universally beloved... San Fernando Valley. Oh. The Basques are here. Colombo Town. Basque in the San Fernando. That that I'm gonna make a new postcard. Come Basque in the San Fernando Valley sun. That's cute. That requires a lot of explaining, but it's mm, cute. No, I think everybody understands the Basque history of the San Fernando Valley. Come tomato bisque in the San. <laughs> is that the same thing? I don't really know French. So the western parts of the valley of what is now Calabasas and beyond were, uh-huh. and I guess, and still are, I guess, rich with limestone. Therefore, a lot of the Basque gold miners came to the valley looking for work and became a pretty big population here circa 1854, which is when Miguel Leonis himself showed up in the valley. So they came to mine lime. Now, the only limes you'll find in the valley, if you get a Los Toros, <laughs> you get a margarita. Greg, a lime margarita or possibly a mojito. I guess that yeah, I guess it's more of a mojito than Man. a margarita. I don't know. I'm not Charles Bukowski. I don't know what goes. Oh my! Oh, he loved margaritas. <laughs> margaritas. He loved a party. <laughs> yeah, but I know you put lime in the coconut. But what do you put limestone in the coconut stone? And <laughs> and you mine it all up. You put the limestone in the coconut stone. You lime we're, it all. We're parody crazy today. We should be P22, which is now a verb. He uh, hit by a car or euthanized. Or have a statue built of us. A little bit of column A, a little <laughs> bit of column B. And none of column C. Yep. He seems to have come here because he knew there were other Basques around, uh-huh. but he himself got involved in something he knew how to do, which was sheep herding, which the valley was also great for right. sheep. The man he got a job working for was named Joaquin Romero, who owned a bunch of land across the valley and beyond that used to be part of the San Fernando mission that had been given to him by the Mexican government. But we wouldn't be sitting here on Boxing Day talking about about Miguel Leonis, if he was just a regular Basque guy who had thrown a few tax collectors off of a cliff. That's that's how you get into this country. The number of Basque guys who had thrown a few tax collectors off of a cliff that we don't talk about in this <laughs> show. So we're talking about Miguel Leonis because he was a lunatic and a dirtbag. Okay. Throwing people off of a cliff for a reason like that makes you a lunatic. I'll hear him out. Yeah, I'll, him out. I'll give him one more term. I don't know if that makes him a lunatic. I'd like some more evidence of lunacy, please. <laughs> what? kind of tax collectors were they? What kind of cliff? Was it over the trampoline gorge? <laughs> so he wouldn't be content to just herd sheep for some guy in the valley, Miguel right. Leonis. He was an egomaniac. I put an exclamation point after yeah. I don't know what. He was an egomaniac. <laughs> He's an egomaniac. Maniac. <laughs> so Miguel Leonis wanted his own land. Nay, Greg. He wanted his own city. Nay, nay. He wanted his own country. Nay, nay, nay. He wanted his own empire. Oh my God. Miguel Leonis. Emperor Leonis. Emperor. He fancied himself. Of the San Fernando Valley. <laughs> of the dominion of Northridge. Yeah. All the way to Arlita. <laughs> all the way to Winnetka. So he fancied himself a king and even expressed to others that he had the goal of creating his own empire, okay. which is crazy. I mean, obviously that's insane, yeah. but it also is not entirely weird considering this was 1854 and like, this was like loosely Los Angeles yeah. at the time. Yeah. I, I feel like, I mean, we don't have to talk about Game of Thrones too much, but like <laughs> the idea that like, so no one's 
really in charge of all this. Right. And if I'm aggressive and if I Boy. harness my lunacy enough. I think in House of the Incest Dragons, I think Miguel Leona should be a character. He should be a character. Because if that's what it's about, this guy fits in perfectly. perfectly. Yeah, yeah, like it makes, like, you know, Empire's pushing it, but like city? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Like this what's a What's a name for another emperor other than like mayor? <laughs> Comptroller. An emperor by any other name <laughs> would be just as uh, much of a dictator. <laughs> so to start all this, though, he needed land. And it just so happened that the guy he worked for had land. And it just so happened the guy he worked for was an alcoholic. Okay. Miguel took advantage of that and got his boss, Joaquin Romero, to sell him all of his land for cheap. So now Miguel Leonis owned a strip of land from around where Palmdale now is to either just in the north of Santa Clarita or the North Valley. Like, it was hard to tell where exactly his part of the land he owned now was. But this is why there's a part of that woodsy, canyony area north of Santa Clarita that's known as Leona Valley. It's oh. named after Miguel Leonis. Wow, really? And also why Miguel Leonis was allegedly there to beat up the monster of Elizabeth Lake. That was right. part of his land. okay. Which, if you don't recall from uh, one of our haunted episodes there was a monster <laughs> it was the devil's pet that right. was like terrorizing people around elizabeth lake and one day miguel leonis came and beat it up and it left forever <laughs> a cartoonish story <laughs> which part is cartoonish <laughs> again he fits into game of thrones he could have beat up the ice queen you is that a thing you almost had the you, ice he could have beat up the ice wall you're using uh it's like you have a dice with just words from Game of Thrones and you just read a sentence that it all made, like a Mad Libs. <laughs> he could have beaten up the northern bleached blondes. <laughs> but that wasn't enough for him. Now, as with almost everything involving this guy, there's two different versions of what happened next, but they're both about how he met a woman named Maria del Espiritu Santo as she was baptized on May 22nd, 1836 at the San Fernando Mission. But she's best known as Espiritu Chihuya, daughter of Juana Eusebra, who was Keech, and Odon, or Odin, Chihuya, who mm -hmm. was a Shumash leader. Okay. So she's the daughter of two different native tribes. Right. Uh, sort of, in a way, I guess not royalty, but like uh, leadership. Yeah, she's acclaimed. She's she's won a few awards. Yeah. Best daughter of two. Uh, yeah. <laughs> they, even back then, they had little Oscars that they would yeah. sell on along what is now Hollywood Boulevard, what was then Dirt. <laughs> and it says two best daughter. The Dirt was really nice, though. And a lot of people <laughs> came from around the world to see the Dirt. Yeah. There were footprints in the Dirt, but they went away like after a day. Yeah. Mel Brooks has always been there, though. His, <laughs> his art somehow R2-D2's feet. Uh, always been there. Uh, so Espiritu lived on uh, 1,100 acres of land that covered pretty much all of West Hills, Calabasas, and part of Woodland Hills. That's then a known, good area. Uh, it's a really big area. Then known as Rancho El Escorpion. That's also a great name. Not only is a land great, a uh, <laughs> great name too. This girl's doing Which pretty Which I don't even think there have ever been scorpions there. Like I've never seen a scorpion in the valley. I hope to God I never do. Yeah. Maybe it was different back then. It's yes. the 18th century. Yeah. We hunted them into Sorry. extinction. 1800s, sorry. <laughs> Get it right. We harvested all of the scorpions in the valley to make Ryan Gosling's jacket in that one movie that was filmed in the valley. It's called Drive. Yeah, it's like a one word. It's not even hard. It's not like the assassination of Jesse James by Carol Robert Ford. It's like Drive. They had sheep. They uh -huh. had cattle. They had horses. They had access to limestone. They had a mall built by Rick Caruso. <laughs> Odon, or Odin, owned this land and ran it alongside Espiritu's husband, Jose Antonio Menendez, and their son, not the last Menendez to live in Calabasas, <laughs> and their son Juan and Odon's brothers Manuel and Urbano also owned part of the land that was given to them by the Mexican government in 1845, which was a rare thing for a native to have gotten land 
granted by the Mexican government. Like they did not do that. Right, right. Except for this, really. Even rarer was a big Basque man trying to have it all. So there's two stories of how Miguel and Espiritu met. One is that Jose, her husband, was already dead, and the two met one day while Miguel was herding his sheep in the area where the two plots of land, I guess, met. Yeah. And they were like, you know, like Romeo and Juliet <laughs> on the other sides of the fence. The other story is that one day Miguel saw two guys whipping a guy, so he beat them off of him, and the man he saved turned out to be Jose, Espiritu's husband. And in repayment for saving him, he gave Miguel all of his livestock and also his son and wife. Oh my God. Who he claimed he won in a card game anyway. <laughs> so the, these are the two versions of the story. I'm giving you something that you already said that you won. When I arrive home, the first thing I see shall be yours. <laughs> Give me that cloud. He's, he's calling ahead. Uh, hide inside. Yeah, hide. Uh, put, put like an old tomato outside. Put my ma- mannequins out front, yeah. <laughs> so whatever really happened, Jose was eventually dead and Miguel ended up marrying Espiritu. They lived on his land and Miguel was a jerk immediately. He was constantly drunk and he was very cruel to Espiritu, who he treated more as his servant than his wife, right. which is, this is what uh, Cece Devere's story was about. Yeah. They had a daughter, Marcelina, together who he actually loved and made sure got an education and everything she ever wanted. Mm-hmm. But as for Espiritu's son from her previous marriage, Miguel hated him and wouldn't let him inside the house and made him sleep in the barn. Right. Ostensibly, this was because he hated him for being lazy because he caught him sleeping on the job once and tied him up by the ankles and dragged him down a hill. But more likely is because he probably didn't acknowledge him as part of his family and probably hated people who weren't Basque. Yeah. Uh, including his wife. Which is weird to think that since he married a native woman, but not so weird when you know about his goal of founding an empire and gathering as much land as possible to do so and that mm-hmm. he saw Espiritu as an easy way to get a lot of land. Yeah. So this was all around 1860. He didn't own Rancho El Escorpion yet, but a few years later, the U.S. government finally turned its Freemason eye on the San Fernando Valley and appraised Miguel's land and found that actually where Miguel was living was technically public land. Okay. And he didn't own it at all. This was the opportunity he was waiting for. Yeah. So protect his precious dirt. Miguel drew up a new land deed under Espiritu's name and also expanded the boundaries of what he owned by convincing Espiritu's dad to include his Rancho El Escorpion to protect it from the U.S. government in what was going to be deeded Espiritu's land and by proxy Miguel's land. Right, right. So he was like, look, I'm about to con the U.S. government. How about you give me all your land? Just yeah. say all your daughter owns all this. Your daughter, my wife, my wife, no. owns all this. Put it in this. It'll be protected from the government. Trust me, I'm yeah. Basque. <laughs> Trust me, there's no cliffs around here. So all parties agreed to this, and after some negotiating with Odon's brother to get their land as well, Miguel Leonis now owned pretty much the Western Valley and beyond. And he had no intention of sharing it or giving it back to its rightful owners. This was his land now. Right. To make sure he was well within the new boundaries of his land, Miguel and Espiritu moved into what is now known as the Leonis Adobe in okay. Calabasas. It's still there, mm-hmm. which was originally built in 1844, they believe, as a stagecoach stop along the El Camino Real. Oh. And from this, the original Calabasas mansion, he ran his burgeoning empire. Okay. He raised sheep, he grew wheat, he sold wool. Uh, that all kind of rhymed, and I didn't even. He mined limestone. Well, how did that all? How did I just rhyme everything? You're Charles Bukowski. Oh my God. Why do I have so much acne? <laughs> but what he really loved was land, and thanks to the vagueness of the homestead laws, he was able to make questionable land grabs all over the valley. Right. His method was to just expand his livestock onto land that wasn't his build a shack on it and have one of his Vaquero workers live in that shack and claim them as his tenant. Okay. So if people ever said like, whose land is this? He'd say, well, it's mine because this is my tenant and I'm the landlord. Right. The landlord. The emperor of land. The, 
the Lord of the Land Emperor. Yeah, (laughs) I'm Land Emperor, and you owe the rent on first of the month. (laughs) One of these shacks was apparently used by a friend of his for the night when he was hiding out from the law, (laughs) Joaquin Murrieta. (laughs) Oh, a different, a different, different, uh, not Tiburcio Vasquez, a more notorious. This was questionable, but not entirely sleazy. But we wouldn't be talking about Miguel Leonis in this episode if he were questionable, but not entirely sleazy, (laughs) Greg. Sometimes the surrounding land he wanted was already being lived on slash how you say owned by somebody else already, but that wouldn't stop Miguel Leonis. Intimidation was his favorite thing to do. All of the surrounding aspiring homesteaders from Mexico, Spain, France, Germany, and the US in the Valley were fair game to him Mm -hmm. if he wanted their land. He would strongly suggest people move away. And when they didn't, he'd resort to things like one of the long list of things I'm about to go through that he did to try to get people to move. Okay. He'd cut neighboring fences and have his animals stampede through their property. (laughs) There was a woman named Mrs. Mountain who he galloped his longhorn cattle at to chase her back into her house. Wow. There was another lady named Mrs. Straussbinger who he would chase with a butcher knife whenever he saw her. Oh, that fun little game they play. But And this is all women, by the way. Like, yeah, for sure. He's the type that's like... Well, in, in France, it's more accepted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And France is part of their tradition and culture. I love France, and I love the people of France. And what a- Well, look, as, when I used to live in France, so I would <laughs> I would threaten a lot of women. This is like when somebody wants to break up with their significant other... They just start a bunch of fights so they can, this isn't like normal. This is like, well, yeah, he, he didn't like, I'm not stealing your land. You're breaking up with my land. Yeah. You're, and bre- I, yeah, you're you fled. Yeah. So he once tried to force the Garnier family off my beloved Rancho Los Encinos, AKA the duck pond yeah. by burning down their wheat fields and beating up their farm workers. And he wasn't alone in doing this. His employees, <laughs> the vaqueros who he would install in the different shacks around his land. In addition to tending that land and being a legal excuse that he owned the land. Yeah. They were also sort of a private militia. Like this was his army. There were about a hundred of them who he could count on to help him intimidate and abuse anybody he wanted. In this sense, he was really, he was like a feudal lord in the Western Valley. And that really came in handy in 1875 in what is now Hidden Hills when a group of 30 Union Army Civil War vets tried to settle the area to start a new life, a quiet new life, which Miguel was not having. (laughs) They refused to leave and wouldn't give in to Miguel's intimidations and that led to a two-week-long mini-war between the Civil War vets and Miguel's oh militia. God. <laughs> Finally, no war, war. We're going <laughs> west. There were several bloody gunfights until one day the vets leader, Andrew Banks, was killed in the battle and the rest of them just gave up and left. They're like, this is like, what this are we doing? Dumb. Yeah. Miguel had these followers, but none of them liked him. Okay. In, in fact, they hated him. They seemed to hate him, but they were also afraid of him. So they did what he said. Okay. This is why he went by Don Miguel and was called by others El Basque Grande or the King of Cal. Calabasas. And because of that, stories and legends start to circulate around him. There's, like I said, the one of him beating up a uh, cryptid in Elizabeth Lake, the devil's pet. Others said he could catch, bind, and lift a cow onto a cart all by himself. There's one story of a bull getting loose around Olvera Street, Uh and it started running at a woman in a red dress, of course. So he jumped in front of it, grabbed it by the horns, and twisted it onto its back and broke its neck with his beard. Oh my God. (laughs) Just another that's why they recreate that every year at Olvera Street. His employees said he ruled over things like King Solomon and always knew when somebody was lying. One time, one of his workers' watch was stolen. So he demanded whoever did it to confess. Of course, nobody did it. So he lined up all the men and he brought out a donkey. (laughs) 
And he told all of them to go up to the donkey one by one and whisper into its ear if you stole the watch or not. Okay. So all these men went up to a donkey and said, I didn't do it. He then took the donkey aside and pretended to have a conversation with it for several minutes. And then he went up to the men and he said, well, the donkey told me who stole it. Is this, it sounds like a scene from Andy Griffith. (laughs) It sounds like something Barney would do. He was trying to teach Opie a lesson. <laughs> and by Opie, I mean every single person in the valley. This is like uh, Barney watches a John Wayne movie. <laughs> and the, next, the whole week he's like, I know how to figure this crime out. This is what the Duke would do. <laughs> so he, he said, the donkey told me who did it. And if the watch isn't returned by tomorrow, there will be punishment. Oh the God. next day, the watch was returned. All kinds of watches were there. <laughs> every, yeah, every everybody, watch. This isn't the watch that's sold, but if you just want to watch. It's not even watches. It's like, take out, here's my shoes. Here's the concept of time. I don't know. I didn't know what to bring. I didn't have a watch. And the donkey's just nodding. Yes, I yes. knew all along. Yeah, this is how we come up. But when intimidation and stealing didn't work, Work, Miguel would resort to his next favorite thing to do, which was suing people. Oh, cool. Uh, a litigious thug. He was involved in over 30 land-related lawsuits, including against one of the Sepulvedas. Oh. He usually didn't win, but he did his best in the form of taking judges and lawyers out to dinner and convincing them to throw away the evidence and take his side. Oh. And also he would threaten witnesses. Oh, great. One time he was watching a parade downtown and in the parade he saw a horse that he said was stolen from him. So he ran up to the horse and said, this is my horse. And he took this guy to court. And his claim was that he could prove it was his horse because this is such a weird story. There was a piece of gold stuffed into the fat of the horse's neck. Uh And if he could bring the horse into... This is another Andy Griffith thing. (laughs) If he could bring the horse into the courtroom and cut its neck open, they would find this piece of gold. And they did. And the gold was in there. (laughs) Did you care more about the horse or the gold? <laughs> Apparently it didn't kill the horse because it was just like fat, but like they still slit a horse's throat and reached in and pulled out a gold nugget. Do all horses have gold in it? That's where gold, it's like an oyster with a pearl. You got to slice Someone open needs a- to tell the Spanish when they come looking for gold that <laughs> they're bringing it with them. Just re- the gold was in your horse's neck all along. The gold was the horses you rode the entire time. <laughs> and isn't that just a beautiful lesson? <laughs> How about you get out of here on the horse you rode in on because it's filled because with it's gold, filled gold, gold and you're for. just wasting your time. <laughs> so in 1882, he got to combine his love for violence and litigiousness when two guys <laughs> were squatting on land he felt was his. Uh-huh. So he physically tied them up and brought them to jail and accused them of burglary. Jesus. They ended up being released and he had to pay them $14,000. That, that's a thing. He was not good in court. Right, 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 he right. lost most of his cases. But he had the bravado to be like, uh, the, the law's on my side because I had a thought. Because I'm a criminal. I- he also got into another legal battle with an equally sleazy woman named Anna Leffingwell. Mm-hmm. She had come to Calabasas from San Francisco in 1885 to marry a man who mysteriously died and she inherited his land. So she then married the landowner next door who also mysteriously died a and she inherited widow. his land. Yeah, uh, There were a lot of black widows there. No scorpions, but a lot of <laughs> Black, black widows. widows. She would keep any animal that wandered onto her property and anyone who came to try to get their animal back, she would aim her shotgun at. <laughs> uh, she would also pretend to limp down the road just so people would pick her up to give her a free ride. Oh, I love this woman. <laughs> but in 1888, she was in a lawsuit against Miguel demanding $5,000 saying that he had destroyed her property with his stampeding cows. Mm-hmm. And when she asked him to stop, he called her, quote, bad names and then pushed her on the ground while his soldiers kicked her. I don't know why these two didn't team up and just like, let's, you know what? We can be king and queen yeah. of the worst part of the world. 
Reynolds. He would also loan out mortgages to people and purposely foreclose on them so that he could wow. buy up their land cheap at auction. Uh-huh. He would also get his enemies' names printed in the newspapers for made-up crimes so that he would smear right. their names. Great guy who had managed to build up 11,000 acres of land by lying and cheating oh, everybody he ever met. And he also had an orchard downtown where El Pato now is, uh, where he allegedly kept his mistress. So I, th- I think I've proven that Miguel Leonis was a degenerate sleazebag. So yeah. now I'll treat you to his fall from glory. Okay. These constant legal battles weren't cheap. And like I said, he usually wasn't winning them. Then in 1880s, a drought hit and his livestock started dying. And slowly the iron grip he had on the Western Valley started to loosen. His legal troubles became so desperate, he even tried to appeal to the president of Mexico for help with mm. his land claims, even though they hadn't been part of Mexico for 30 years at this point. <laughs> yeah. uh, and these legal and financial troubles were on top of his personally miserable life as well. Right. Clearly his marriage was a sham and mm-hmm. bad, but in 1880, the only person he actually seemed to love, his daughter Marcelina, died at age 20 of smallpox. Wow. This sent him into such a low place that he went into a three-day drunken stupor that culminated in him trying to hang himself on a tree in his backyard. Jeez. He was standing... He was... St- <laughs> He sued the tree. (laughs) He was standing on his horse in a noose, but his horse wouldn't move. So he just got down and sawed it off the branch and anchor. And then he cut open the horse's neck and he found some gold gold. and he was happy again. He just chewed on it for a little bit. But this whole miserable existence came to an end on September 20th, 1889. He had just won his first court case in nine years. So Mm -hmm. to celebrate, he got ridiculously drunk and still decided to make the wagon journey back to Calabasas from downtown. (laughs) When he was in the Cahuenga Pass, he, of course, fitting metaphor fell off his wagon and had his torso and head run over by the wheels. He was discovered dead the next morning. That's how Mikel Leonis died. I guess before you can get drunk and pass out on the train tracks, that's the way to go. Leave your wagon keys with your friend next time you want (laughs) to. This horse is too drunk. That day, Espiritu's son moved into the house with her, and I imagine everybody in the valley started singing Ding Dong, the witch is dead. (laughs) I read that there literally were celebrations all around the valley that night because he was just hated like yeah. he was a bully, a bully. No, he made everybody fearful for their land yeah. and there was like it was just a bad guy wow. he was remembered as a litigious basque sheep owner and many people saw him as the squatter on all the land which was which he was yeah this was not his land there was a service for miguel at saint vibiana downtown near little tokyo it's still there and was buried downtown at first next to his daughter but it was eventually moved in 1930 to hell uh <laughs> to the calvary cemetery in east la <laughs> but his legacy was so negative and overpowering that it had a long impact. For Calabasas itself, with Don Miguel, the king of Calabasas, gone, it created a power vacuum of sorts, and the whole place just erupted in Old West violence. With all this new land up for grab, it created tons of land disputes that led to revenge killings, vigilantism, and cattle rustling all throughout Calabasas. The justice of the peace was paying, just like Andy Griffith, he was paying assassins to kill people for him. Apparently in a saloon fight, one guy had his eyes gouged out and his nose and ears bitten off, which I didn't know that Mike Tyson lived in Calabasas. (laughs) Between 1890 and 1900, there were seven murders and dozens of assaults in Calabasas, which might not sound like a lot by today's standards, but there were probably like nine people living in Calabasas at the time. The population of Calabasas today is like 22,000. So uh, literally, it was probably like 100 people. (laughs) It became known as the most lawless locality in the county. so funny that it's Calabasas. I know. (laughs) 
All we need is Rick Caruso <laughs> to shape this place up. The lawyer Horace Bell, who was a constant adversary and occasional ally of Miguel Leonis in court, described Calabasas saying, inhabitants killed each other off so steadily that a human face is a rarity. Uh, which I don't even know what that means. It, that's like more poet. This is Bukowski. Right they there. didn't have faces? Angels with no faces? Lays you son visage? <laughs> I mean, that guy got his use gouged out. Yeah. <laughs> so they have no eyes. And no with face? No, without a face? Like that Dick Tracy villain? <laughs> but amongst those most closely affected by Miguel, there was just as much calamity. When he died, Miguel Leonis was either the third richest person in California or one of the 10 richest men in LA. I mm -hmm. read both of them. Either way, this Basque had money. His nephew, Jean Baptiste, also went on to found the city of Vernon. Oh, wow. Okay. But that's not part of the story. Right. When Miguel died, his estate was estimated to be worth, in today's dollars, almost $10 million. Of all this, to his wife, Espiritu, the woman who he didn't actually seem to like and had pretty much stolen her family's land and neglected her son, mm -hmm. he left all the furniture they owned and $10,000. Cool. <laughs> 5000 in cash, 5000 in a trust, quote, to prevent her from being reduced to pennies during her lifetime by reason of her ignorance and inexperience. Oh, you found a way posthumously <laughs> from, the grave. from the grave to rag me. That's great. His tombstone is just says, I hate my wife. <laughs> the rest he left to his family back in France. Why and how, you ask? Because Dirtbag from the On the Grave over here claimed in his will that she was not his wife, but rather his faithful housekeeper. Oh my He denied God. that she was ever his wife. He even went to go even further in the will to say that she would only get even what she was promised if she didn't contest the will. So, of course, God. she contested the will. Yeah. She hired Horace Bell and future U.S. Senator Stephen Mallory White to represent her in court, and the mud immediately started flying. There was doubt cast on the relationship between Espiritu and Miguel, even though they had sworn in court in a previous case that they were married. The problem was that their marriage ceremony was a keech ceremony, so there wasn't official documentation mm. recognized by the current government. Right, right, right. There were allegations about her dating a younger guy since Miguel died, which I don't get why that was really an issue. <laughs> there were rumors that her son Juan was actually riding on the wagon with Miguel that night and might have actually pushed him off the Whoa. wagon. They brought their daughter's tombstone, like we talked about, into yeah. the courtroom to prove that they were married, because it's said on it that she was their daughter. It was a scandalous trial, not least of all because Espiritu was a native woman fighting for property from her dead white husband, which was unheard of at the time for several reasons. Several reasons yeah. <laughs> the case lasted five weeks, and after less than a day of deliberating, she won, which okay. made her the first American woman to win a palimony suit, which means compensation between what was considered an unmarried couple. Right, so okay. she was the first woman in the United States history to win that. Wow. But the victory was fleeting because over and over, court cases came at her over the ownership of her land for the next 15 years. Yeah. And at the same time, she did get swindled by some con artists and lost a bunch of money and land. And even her lawyers were taking half of her court winnings Jeez. for payment. Great. But in the end, she lived on that land that was rightfully hers until she died in 1906. And she's buried at the San Fernando Mission. Her son, of course, inherited the land. But after some bad financial decisions, he lost it on May 25th, 1922. This was the last time the land of Calabasas was owned by native ownership okay. ever. <laughs> That's where it ended. And it was bought by Lester P. Agora of Agora Hills. Oh, wow. Then on November 10th, 1931, it was bought by the Spinks Realty Company and the Leonis Adobe was turned into a sanitarium. May 1st, 1950, it was sold to the Hidden Hills Corporation. Then in 1957, it made its way into the hands of the Woodland Hills Building and Finance Company, uh, who were going to tear it down to build a supermarket. For a while, it was part of the Warner Brothers Ranch. And apparently the last person to live in that house 
John Carradine. Oh my God, really? <laughs> Dracula himself. Uh, then on August Dracula 6th- Dracula of Billy the Kid versus Dracula? <laughs> it's the perfect place. <laughs> if you're going to find Billy the Kid and Dracula, it's going to be in Calabasas. <laughs> then on August 6th, 1962, the Leonis Adobe became Los Angeles Historic Cultural Monument number one, and then a museum in 1966. So ends the legend of Miguel Leonis. Wow. A type of man who I wish died for good in the late 1800s, but seems to never quite go out of style, especially in Calabasas. Yikes. What a uh, a true bad man. And a, a guy who, like, his legends are fun, but yeah. I'm sure what actually happened is even worse and sad. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> it sounds like a great TV show drama, but then you watch it, like, this guy's a jerk. Why are we watching <laughs> A couple of gross people in a long history of gross people in Los Angeles. That almost seemed to overlap a little bit. One's legend goes up to the 20s and one was born in 1920. (laughs) He inherited the mantle of uh, (laughs) alcoholism and land grabs. But one is clearly a criminal and the other one's sort of like, I'm real sad and the sadness I carry with me is going to affect a lot of other people. I mean, we we don't know the full story of Miguel Leonis. Maybe he has a sad backstory, but like, you know, it's not an excuse. I mean, anybody born in front of... Yeah, no, it's certainly no excuse. I'm very interested in like old west bad boys that's why i was really interested in miguel leonis because especially calabasas has like a crazy cowboy history it's very strange that it does it It, really is and not even that long ago like 30 years later it was like the kardashians moved in (laughs) and that's really the reputation if you live in la now calabasas is like the rich of the rich live there yeah and like they pretend beverly hills the way I say like those old West Beverly Hills, old West Beverly Hills. Yeah. It's old West Beverly Hills. <laughs> Did you know that the Kardashians used to stampede their cattle through the, their neighbor's yards? I know that they are popular in a, a courtroom for sure. <laughs> Certainly were. Certainly were. Famously litigious. Yeah, famously litigious. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we have no shortage of sleazy people in the city of Los Angeles, and some of them are never touched a drop of alcohol and still <laughs> manage to be sleazy, awful people. You don't have to be drunk to be a bad no. person. You can Look let- at me. You could be maybe a crooked mayor or maybe a KKK mayor. Impossible. 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 Well, before we wind down here, we've got a listener question for you. But even before that, we just want to remind you, buy one of our calendars. Yep. $35 shipping included. LEMeeklyPodcast.com slash merch. Wonderful calendars. Really, everybody who has one is very happy with it. People are loving them. And you know what? By association, they love us. By association, they have to love us. Yeah, if you buy one of these, part of the online form to order one is uh, that you... Check here if you're a robot. Yeah. Check here if you love Daniel and Greg. Yeah. Most people check one or the other. A lot of people sort of stop... They're like, oh, is it, no, I don't need a calendar. That Oddly, bad. more robots have more love for us than humans. Uh, no surprise there. <laughs> I can treat my microwave very well. <laughs> I feed it a lot, a of, splattered lot of beans. splattered beans. Yeah, a lot of splattered pasta sauce. <laughs> so let's wrap up with our listener question. This okay. is an interesting one. This one is from our old pal, Chriselle, or as her friends call her, Chriselle. Right. Hi, Chriselle. Me being, I guess, her only friend, because I'm the only one who calls her Chriselle. <laughs> so she said, you've mentioned that the system you use to upload gives you metrics. Do you know what your most popular episodes of all time are and if there's a skew towards certain topics or formats? Does the answer surprise you? And what would you have expected the most popular episode to be? Do you guys have a favorite episode or one that you wish got more attention? Right. So I I didn't know. I, I, I answered the sort of questions before I looked up the answers, mm-hmm. which I never really 
thought to look like what's our most popular episode yeah. ever i know our most favorite segment on youtube it might be the slapsy maxi one yeah but that's just because people think it's something to do with some anime like right. i don't go by that i go by i'm going by on libsyn downloads of episodes because right. like any weird thing that people might think have nudity <laughs> on youtube will be popular so we started using libsyn a few years in uh-huh. uh, and the stats before that weren't carried over and they changed metrics a few years ago or a year ago or so so right. so these are the most accurate uh, sort of things. I would have guessed that our most popular episodes would have been food-related ones. I was thinking maybe the local dishes one. I mean, one of my favorites, and I thought I'd, I mean, I don't Not favorites. What what would you, because we talked about our favorite ones in the past, but what would you think would be our most popular ones? I'd say in and out might be like so that, that was another one. yeah the fa- again food stuff yeah <laughs> our famously hungry listeners maybe like like overall history something that has to do with like the original people of Los Angeles or how the city was founded because we mistakenly get a lot of people think that we're an actual good history <laughs> podcast they don't know that we we giggle and do Elvis references so they don't know and do what and Elvis references they don't uh, know that we do yeah. that stuff. well I mean that that's you, that's proper if you it's, it's etiquette to do an Elvis <laughs> impersonation when you talk about Los Angeles history I, I would think it would be something overarching history instead of like a small specific but then like I guess a lot of people are like what's in and out story and then winding up yeah. listening to us for episodes that I wish got some more attention oh also sorry we did an episode about the Cecil Hotel I imagine after the documentary a lot of people might have stumbled into right. us that were more curious yeah. okay uh, what about um, what you wish got more attention because we don't I mean you don't really know the numbers but I kind of wish that our live shows got more attention yeah yeah we put a lot of work I mean we put a lot of work into those live shows and they were a lot of fun especially the <laughs> Creepy Christmas one was a lot of fun yeah. to do live So, I, but I, I think the live format I mean while the people there enjoyed it yeah. uh, I swear <laughs> Because um, me personally, even listening to live episodes of shows I like, yeah. meaning not this one, they're they're different. It's just yeah. a different f- energy, and that's kind of not what I go to yes, for yes. these podcasts. Yeah. So I kind of understand why those ones have been a little right. less popular. So you want to know the number? Well, what do you think? What, what would I like to be more popular? Yeah. My personal preference, like anything we do with crime and criminals, I always hope would be more popular because we, I, I mean, I, that's the subject I really am interested in. So doing it, I just obsess about it more. I put a little more footwork into right. trying to figure that stuff out and reading about it. And I enjoy reading it. So like, I, I would hope that our, our best work is for that stuff, especially because true crime became like a big popular thing. So you're most passionate about crime. I'm most passionate about food. Makes sense. <laughs> I've met the both of us. That makes sense. <laughs> and when I eat, it is a crime. The way you eat is a crime. <laughs> okay, so these are the results. I looked it up. Our most downloaded episode of all time mm-hmm. is Parks and Recs. Is it really? About local parks from February 1st, 2022. That is very interesting. I find that to be very strange because I remember even when that came out, like this is getting a lot of attention. Yeah. But like, I, I, it's kind of weird to me. Like, really? Yeah, that, that, that is kind of surprising. <laughs> I don't know why. Because exactly. I also kind of hope that our bigger park episode we did a angelos national forest yeah and malibu state right park that's kind of odd um, i find that to be very strange but remember like you know our parks are one of the most defining features of los angeles yeah. maybe people want to know more about that and good for them and hopefully we they learned a little bit or they <laughs> at least learned enough to look up on their own actual facts <laughs> oh come on come on now um but rounding out our top five are to live and why in la 
okay. from November 1st, 2021. That sure. was a listener submitted thing of why people wa- live in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Then avoid the annoyed with things that annoy people in LA from October 1st, 2020. Uh-huh. Then comes meaning streets about street, street names, names from March 1st, 2021 and sunrise on the sunset strip from September okay. 1st, 2020. Okay. Uh, so those were the top ones. Listener we, questions. That's a surprise. I know. The vain, the <laughs> these vain, vain listeners. We don't get a creepy Christmas uh, until number nine, which is actually part nine, part malign from December 1st, 2021. That is surprising to me that the haunted ones are not higher up. Yeah. I, I mean, those are the ones I really listen to the most. I was going to say like the missing persons one we did was one of my favorites. And that was... I that don't that think one? that was... No, 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 no. This one was... Just, I think this is the one actually that might have had the monster of Elizabeth Lake in it. Because oh, this was okay. our, not our most recent one, but our uh, last year's one, which was just random stories. Right, but, right. I am surprised by that. Yeah. And also, because that one is kind of ones that we hear from people that they're most excited about. Yeah. So it's kind of strange that, I mean, maybe you should download it a few <laughs> more times if you're so excited. But our biographic, like uh, like the one we did on Judy Garland and Roger Corman or the witches, uh, Vampire Alvira and Louise Hubner, I would hope those would get a little more popular too, but... Nope. <laughs> I'm surprised that the looser ones were pretty high up. Yeah. I, guess I mean, those it- are good posed questions that people might be curious about who are moving to LA. So maybe yeah. it has some draw there. That makes sense. Uh, but I'd still like food to be higher up. Uh, the highest That's ranking always. food one was a hot topic, which was about hot sauces from September right. 1st, 2021. Seemed pretty popular. I'm also kind of surprised that our older ones aren't higher up since they've been around longer. But mm-hmm. like I said, the the with the switch to Libsyn and all right. that, and also they might have just sucked. But um, <laughs> not gonna hear me say it. <laughs> but yeah, that, that those results were surprising to yeah. me. But uh, hey, hey, I'm just happy people are listening. We're just gonna be all about parks from now on. <laughs> We've got a few more parks. There's a lot of parks. We can talk about the little one on uh, Rinaldi and Balboa. <laughs> That's just like a bus stop. <laughs> so uh, happy new year to everybody. We'll, uh, I hope we set the bar pretty high for what dirtbags and criminals do. Yeah. <laughs> maybe you feel a little bit better about yourself. According to the Chinese Zodiac, this is the year of the dirtbag. So we wanted to set a good tone for yes. all of you. When you let go of your New Year's resolutions, just know you're probably not as bad as these two. Yeah, yeah, you for might sure. Be. Some of you and might be. It's fine if you are. <laughs> So uh, we'll see you soon. Uh, Enjoy 2023, the year of the future. That's been uh, yet another episode of LA Meekly. It's been 10 years since 2013. This is our our cobalt anniversary. (laughs) 